WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 311. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guys show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In this episode, a Ukrainian Antonov AN-148 crashes shortly after takeoff from Moscow. A tour company helicopter crashes in the Grand Canyon. EASA issues an emergency directive regarding uncommanded in-flight shutdowns of A320neo and A321neo engines. More news, your feedback, and this week's plain tale, All Blood Runs Red. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 311 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer a lot of your feedback. And joining me to help with all of that is a doctor, doctor, a strength training junkie, an IPA connoisseur, a marathon runner, skydiver, and most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but pertaining to this show, a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hello, Captain Jeff. I will say it's been a struggle for me already today, so hopefully the rest of the show goes well. Um, my apologies in advance if I suddenly cut out or become unintelligible. I blame my internet slash computer, and I'm not sure what the problem is, but I'll keep working to try and fix it. So we're we're gonna we're gonna push through. We're gonna press on, and <laughs> I'm sure that you're gonna figure it out. <laughs> I hope so. Hey, yeah, me too. And uh, also joining us from across the pond in his uh, sprawling country estate southwest of London. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, currently a captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hello there, Jeff, and hi, Steph, and I see some strange-looking bloke in an orange T-shirt who's yet to be introduced. Yeah, lovely to be back on the show again. I've dragged myself out of my deathbed. Uh, I do have the embalming uh, kit all set up uh, downstairs for when I pass peacefully from this mortal coil and uh, and head on to the next life, which is does not seem to be very far away at the moment. But <laughs> oh no, more of that later. I saw. Okay, <laughs> well, yeah, we'll 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 hear more about your your health issues uh, shortly. But in the meantime, joining us, not from Smyrna, Georgia, but from Rochester, New York. Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Oh, great to be back. Another episode. I'm really proud of you, Jeff. Uh, Rochester was pronounced properly as a Bostonian. Did a great job with that. And hey, Nick, I know it may look orange because of the cruddy lighting in my room here, but uh, in actuality, it's red for Valentine's Day. So, yeah. 
Uh, happy Valentine's Happy Day. Valentine's Day to all of our listeners. Anyways, they're looking forward to another great show. Three eleven on the docket here, and we're gonna we're gonna get this thing rolling. All right, let's do that. And uh, because I'm sure that it's gonna go just completely smoothly. <laughs> it always does. <laughs> Absolutely, it always does. every every time. <laughs> as far as everybody knows, it's gone extremely smoothly so far. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I understand that you, Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph, uh, saw each other um, recently, and uh, tell us about that. We did. We had a little uh, get-together last night uh, when Dana was on his layover, and we'll just say that was in the triad area. And it's not too far from where I am, so managed to be done with work a little bit early and drove about an hour and a half up to, to that area. And we got together with another person who some of our listeners may know from, uh, there's a new aviation podcast out there called Opposing Bases. And it's kind of from the air traffic control side of things. And we met up with one of their co-hosts, RH. So we got together for uh, some dinner, some beers, and just some good aviation conversation. Excellent. Gosh, I wish that, um, you know, I kind of could hear like, like almost like we're there, kind of a, like an audio recording or something that, of uh that'd be know, nice the, i think ama- yeah oh, go ahead what? Uh, amazingly enough i think yeah we may have a new we may have turned over a new leaf on Uh-oh. the show we're gonna we're gonna get better than 50 percent accuracy we're gonna yeah better than 50 percent accuracy <laughs> don't get too excited and, <laughs> and, and captain dana's learning how to use technology you're gonna find out here in just a minute that's also oh, really possible uh, <laughs> so oh you know what oh yeah we're we're hinting that uh, there is actually an audio recording of this wonderful meetup in somewhere an hour and a half away from where <laughs> stephanie lives okay here we go well hello apg listeners uh, good afternoon from the crafted the art of street food uh, here in um, north carolina had the pleasure of uh, having dinner with uh, dr steph and a fellow AP, a APG listener slash podcaster, RH. Uh, we've had a fantastic evening of uh, discussing uh, podcasting, discussing the uh, APG show, and of course the uh, RH show, which I'll let him tell you a little bit about. And uh, I'm going to pass over the uh, microphone to, uh, let's go with the ladies first. Let's go to Dr. Steph. Hey there, Dr. Steph here. I'm mostly here for the beer, let's be honest about it. I, uh, here in North Carolina, I am uh, able to get one of my favorite all-time IPAs, which is the Jade IPA from uh, Foothills Brewery over in Winston-Salem, which is nearby. Um, so I'm enjoying that. And we actually had the uh, distinct pleasure of sampling, tasting a beer, which, don't laugh at the name, it's called Sexual Chocolate. It is a... And Dr. Steph and I shared that. It was so good. We, we did share it, actually. It was, it was very good. Um, if you're familiar with Eddie Murphy's uh, Coming to America, that's where the name comes from for this particular beer. But it's a very good chocolate stout, and I highly recommend it if you're ever in the uh, Winston-Salem slash Greensboro area, especially in the month of February, because that's when it's released. So, uh, Especially me saying that I actually like the beer. That's pretty, that says a lot. That was actually very good. That does say a lot because Dana is not a self-professed non-beer aficionado. It's not not really his thing. So we enjoyed that. But yeah, as Dana said, um, just having a really good night, enjoying some conversation, some aviation talk, 
hanging out here with RH from the Opposing Bases podcast. And we've been talking a little bit about things from the air traffic control side of things. And um, yeah, just really, really enjoyable and wish you guys all were here with us. But I'm going to pass it over to RH and get his take on the evening. So here you go. Hey, APG listeners, thanks for tuning in to another uh, episode of the show that got us started. We appreciate all your help at RH and AG's show, the Opposing Bases Air Traffic Talk podcast, which you can find on iTunes as well. I was able to uh, listen to episode 310 of the APG show on Sunday night and heard First Officer Dana, soon to be Captain Dana, uh, mentioning an overnight in the triad area. And I said, hey, I'm going to uh, reach out and hopefully be able to meet up. And luckily, Dr. Steph was able to drive up from the Concord area and uh, have a nice dinner down at uh, Prayer Brewing Company and the accompanying restaurant, Crafted, the art of the street food. Excellent dinner, excellent conversation. Thank you guys for letting me tag along your overnight. And... uh, To all the APG listeners, I really appreciate all the support. You guys have gotten us off to an awesome start. AG is on the other side of the country doing a uh, military exercise. He was unable to join us. AG, we wish you could be here and uh, hope you're having a great week out in Seattle. Thank you for your service. And uh, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie, for the opportunity. And hopefully we'll get to do this again soon. You guys have a good night. Well, RH, we appreciate you coming out this evening to discuss your brand new podcast, Opposing Bases. I have to admit, uh, I've listened to a couple couple episodes at this point, and think you guys are doing a fantastic job. On behalf of Steph and myself, Dana, I'd certainly like to thank you for coming out, and uh, we really enjoyed the evening. Until next time, we'll uh, we'll uh, see everyone soon. I hope. Bye bye. Yay! Excellent. Always nice to hear, you know, little glimpses of these uh, these encounters out there. Actually, I have one too that I can play as soon as we're ready for that. So did I hear right? Ag's out um, playing or servicing his chopper or playing with his chopper somewhere. What's, <laughs> what's that, that is about? that is correct. That is okay. correct. Thank, playing thank with him, his chopper. Yeah, thanking him for his okay. service in his chopper. That's very good. It sounds like fun to me. I mean, he gets paid for that, doesn't he? And he gets a helicopter to play with, and he can do nap of the earth flying and all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, I think he should be thanking us. Or actually, you guys, you're the taxpayers. No, no. (laughs) So you definitely had it the right way around the first time. We should definitely be thanking him for his service. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know I'm only joking. I know, I know. So how was that uh, sexual chocolate? Was it pretty good? I've had that, actually. That you have beer. had it. Yeah. It, it's a fantastic beer. Um, I don't get a chance to get it too often down here in Charlotte anymore. They do sell it down here, but it's just nicer to have it closer to the source. So good opportunity. I had to wipe my mouth afterwards. I was. It was really good. <laughs> <laughs> where where are, uh, are you, Matt Smith? Where are you? We need you right now. Uh. Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Thank you very much. Uh, I was in Philadelphia a couple nights ago, and um, I I had to apologize to uh, Colonel Jeff. He was a little upset because I didn't tell him I was there. I, I just wanted to leave him alone. For sure. Um, yeah, I know. Anyway, I went to Monk's Cafe, and uh, they have a great selection of 
beer in general, but a really good selection of Belgian beer as well. But interestingly, after uh, dinner, uh, mussels and stuff, uh, I wanted to have some kind of a dessert kind of a beer and ended up getting a Japanese stout. And it was pretty good. It was a, like an espresso stout uh, from some Japanese brewer. And uh, I was very surprised. I think, really? Interesting. So what was this yeah, about? I forgot uh, what the name. Um, you had another meetup? Yeah. Um, let's see. Yesterday, last night, um, my first officer and I were planning on uh, getting some Tex-Mex. Well, I think I talk about it in the in the actual uh, piece of audio feedback. So let me just play that so I don't repeat myself. Hey, we are at the L, the El Real. No, the El Real. Tex-Mex restaurant here in Houston, Texas. What is this area called? Um, Montrose, near the Heights. Heights. I don't know. The kids here know all of this stuff. Anyway, uh, my first officer, Sean, and I uh, were planning on uh, doing uh, a nice Tex-Mex meal here in Houston. Uh, It is Mardi Gras, uh, Fat Tuesday, and we were going to do it up. And then we uh, were uh, notified or contacted by some local folks here in the Houston area, and they said, hey, we see that you're going to be here in Houston, and we want to uh, meet up with you. And I thought, okay, well, as long as you uh, want to eat some Tex-Mex, you're more than welcome to. And so here we are at the uh, El Real, and uh, let's see. Let's start with Brendan, who is a uh, works for a, another airline. I don't know what Acme we're going to call it, but uh, he could probably actually tell us exactly what airline he works for because he doesn't do a podcast, and he's not going to get in trouble, I'm sure. But anyway, here. I'm going to hand the microphone over here to you. Uh, hi, I'm Brendan. I actually work in uh, ground ops for uh, Acme Heart. It's um, everyone's favorite Texas-based, directionally named airline. Everyone's favorite? What? And uh, I'm just really glad we were able to uh, meet up with uh, Captain Jeff and Sean, show them one of uh, my favorite restaurants in Houston, and have a good time. It was, glad, it was a good thing we were able to catch them. Hi, I'm Jacob, uh, ex-ACME operations agent, uh, now turned consultant. Was glad to uh, meet up with Captain Jeff and Sean and the other local Houstonians here and uh, have some great Tex-Mex and margaritas and uh, catch up and talk a bunch of plane talk. Hey, this is David. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having us, Jeff. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, worked for the uh, airline that uh, Dana worked for on the regional side uh, for many years and then left the industry. Uh, still involved in aviation through Civil Air Patrol. Hi, I'm Tommy, uh, ex-IT for uh, Acme Nental and uh, Acme Knighted. And uh, now changing careers to be a uh, full-time pilot. I just finished my commercial uh, rating and getting my CFI and all that soon and taking this journey. So um, uh, just great to meet Jeff out here. Thanks. It's, ama- it's great to meet all of you. And, uh, that, you know, as I always say, uh, I, I enjoy doing the podcast, and uh, it's great hanging out with good friends, uh, you know, the crew every week and, uh, and, and the folks that show up for the live recording and the chat room and all that kind of stuff that's awesome but the best part of this whole thing is this getting to go somewhere and then people say hey i see that you're going to be in houston and you know let's let's do a meetup and it's the best part of this whole aviation community this whole podcasting thing as uh getting together with folks like 
all of these great people here at El Real. So we're keeping it El Real. And uh, I'm going to sign off now before I say something else that's really, really stupid. The best part of APG is the community. I just came up with that. That's lovely. Very good. (laughs) I think you should record it. I also like coffee. Uh, I took it from uh, Folgers Folgers in your cup. The best part of waking up. Are they sponsoring the show now? Uh, they are. are we, or are we just paying them money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we'll probably have to pay their lawyers money yes. <laughs> for that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it was a great time. Um, and again, totally unexpected. And uh, it was uh, interesting because I was telling uh, my, my first officer, Sean, I said, hey, uh, would you mind if we like one or two other people kind of join us for dinner? And and uh, I could tell he was like, not really sure if this is a good idea. And, uh, you know, because we had to get up really early this morning. He was probably thinking we we're going to be out really, really late. And I said, oh, no, no, we're just going to eat and, you know, have have some good conversation and then get a good night's sleep and all that. And uh, anyway, uh, more and more people just kept showing up to the El Real. <laughs> and uh, it was crazy. And uh, but actually, he said he, he really enjoyed it. He said it was great conversation. Great folks. Uh, and, uh, he was actually pleased that he was uh, a part of the meetup. Wasn't planning on it, but, uh, anyway, we had a good time in Houston, Texas. And, uh, let's see what else, uh, Captain Nick, yes, have, uh, have you been doing anything of, of, of note, uh, since our, you know, we just recorded what on Saturday, so we, it hasn't been that many days, but I have a feeling that you've been kind of busy doing stuff. Well, I was a little bit because, uh, I don't know, wait, you'll know, but, uh, listeners won't, we just, uh, cut the live feed and, um, I was saying, oh, I'll be going on call in a minute. Now, what had happened was I was due to be in the simulators uh, for um, sort of two and a half days, and um, they decided there was someone much more deserving. So they took those simulators away from me and put me on a kind of a standby followed by a work uh, day. Um, and uh, they that standby started at 9.30 at night, and it's only supposed to be um, to give me a replacement simulator. So uh, I was a bit surprised when the phone went. So I went, oh, oh dear. <laughs> um, they found me a sim, and they, they hadn't, of course. There's a little caveat in our um, uh, requirements that says if there's an operational disruption and they will possibly uh, have to cancel a flight, which obviously is a big financial penalty, let alone the disruption to all the passengers, um, they can uh, give us a trip. So uh, they called me out and said, uh, oh, Nick, uh, we need you to fly tomorrow morning uh, relatively early. I had to be up around uh, 7. And um, then, uh, you know, you're going to go to Barbados, and then because we don't have enough time to give you a full trip, you're going to stay on the airplane and come straight back home again. And I went, oh, no, I knew that was going to be a bit of a killer. And I was also starting to get a bit um, coldy because I don't know if you remember on the show, I was starting to feel a little bit under the weather. But I felt okay to fly at that point. So I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. Got up the next morning and I'm having a shower and I wrenched my back. Now I'm in a lot of pain. And I sort of crawling out the shower on my hands and knees going, oh, my God. 
Um, so I lay down for a little while and managed to relax just enough to be able to sort of get dressed and stagger downstairs. And I said, I phoned him up and said, look, I've done my back in. I'm in a lot of pain. Any chance you've got a spare captain to do this trip? Because I don't think I'm going to be fit. They said, nope, you're it. If you don't pitch up, we cancel the flight. We've got 240 passengers waiting for you here. And, of course, if you don't fly the aircraft out to um, – Oh, where was I going again? Somewhere in uh, Barbados. Barbados, thanks. Uh, then, of course, you've got all those passengers there waiting to come home. And uh, in both cases, we'll have to find hotel rooms for them all. So I said, okay, well, look, I, if I can get to the airport, I'll see how I feel. I'll take some painkillers. And I got to the airport. The cold was starting to get a bit bad. I was starting to feel a bit croaky. But I uh, managed, uh, managed to fly the aircraft, uh, so we did the trip out. I, you know, it wasn't too bad. I was, uh, I was safe uh, to operate, but I just was feeling a bit rough. Of course, uh, then everyone dives off to the uh, hotel and drinks uh, rum cocktails. I, of course, stay at the damned airport, and as soon as they turn the airplane around, like a couple of hours later, I'm dragged back onto it and uh, then have to stay on. So that was like a 26-hour day for me by the time. I mean, I got a little bit of sleep on the way back, but no more than like four hours probably. Um, by the time I got home, I was, uh, you know, um, it had a real cold. My back wasn't much better. I was still in a lot of pain. So that's been me since then. I'm, I've still got this cold. Uh, I've still got uh, my back. It's not in spasm anymore. It's uh, kind of a bit more relaxed, but it's it's every time I move it, you can I can feel it twinge, and it's uh, I've got to get some treatment for it. But that's another story. But so I've had a bit of a miserable few days, and um, I I'm supposed to be off to San Francisco on Friday, uh, and I am fingers crossed that I I will be fit enough to do that. But at the moment, nah, it's not looking so good. So it was a it was a mean thing to make me do. Uh like they're very mean to me, my company. But uh, oh. yeah, I know it's not fair, is it? No, it's 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 actually it's kinda it's kinda it's sad, sad, really. Yeah, it is sad. Uh, I don't know why it's not playing. Oh, I know. Because you don't really care. I can tell. No, really, Actually, it's really because care. I have two keyboards in front of me and I keep pressing the wrong keyboard. Here we go. It's so sad. So sad. It is a sad situation. We we do not like to hear or see you uh, sick or Ill. in pain or all of the above. Yeah. Overworked. Well, wait, I'm all, all three of those now. He's and, sick all the time. He, and, yeah, well, I try to be. Um, so because uh, I get paid when I'm sick, unlike you guys. Uh, so <laughs> wow. I um I, we do too. I, we do too. Uh, go and you get more money if you fly a trip. Yeah, depend. Yeah, and there's a certain amount uh, of full pay, and then after a, a certain period, then uh, then it reverts to what is it, sixty percent, Dana? Fifty percent. Like That's that. for fifty percent. Short-term disability is fifty percent. Okay. Uh, there you go. Anyway, anyway, so I, I mean, I, I get the majority of my. I still get a little bit more when it's flight pay, but uh, yeah. And so um, I did my plane tail. Uh, in fact, this morning, hoping that my, my voice would be okay. I'm going to apologize to everyone. I sound like a squeaky frog um, trying to do my plane tail. Uh, I, I will re-record it uh, for the um, you know for the website when eventually we get that page up and running. So uh, 
in future you'll be able to hear it in my more more normal voice. But today I sound awful. Well, you know, right now you sound. I, I listened to it um, a couple of hours ago, and um, I'm thinking I was really feeling bad for you. You sound a lot better now. Oh, I do. Than you did when you oh, recorded okay. that uh, plain tale. I just yeah. can't get uh, my voice to go below this certain pitch at the moment. It's sort of stuck up here in in a falsetto. I feel. Nah, it doesn't sound that high. You falsetto when you bent over and hurt your back. Uh, Why were you bending over in the shower? I was. I just <laughs> moving on. Were you, picking, were, you, were you picking up some soap? No, I was washing my feet on I a rope. Soap. I have soap on a rope. Yeah, I don't bend over to do that. But I'm not in the lift na- up your feet I'm, next I'm time. I'm not in the navy, so I don't worry too much about that. <laughs> I don't have to shower with my back to the wall. <laughs> Or uh, you never you never bend over to pick up the soap if uh, you're in a penitentiary. That's, That's what I hear true. anyway. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure why, but you know. Anyway, let's move on. Family show and all that. Um, okay, let's see. You know, we talked about on an earlier show about uh, the uh, Talons Douglas and uh, Larry Gregory actually set the record straight. He said it was me, and I. Uh, uh, was watching the video using the caption, the closed captioning on, and on the closed captioning, and he sent a little uh, a little snapshot of the uh, screen, a little screen capture of uh, uh, where it says visibility and tal- talons take care of Douglas. So it must have been a while uh, ago, Jeff. You look quite. Young it was in that picture. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think it was like uh, about the beginning of last year, uh, January of last year, I believe. I'm really aging quickly. <laughs> anyway, it must be the show. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Hanging around, hanging out with you guys. Or all the new uh, first offices you're flying with. Yeah, that could be it as well. Okay. Uh, and then I meant to mention this on the last show. I think after we stopped the recording last week, I, I talked about this, but I'm going to do it for the record. Um, Matt Todd sent this in. He said, I wanted to write you a note to expand on your, on your discussion about the additional Super Bowl traffic that St. Cloud was supposed to take in. St. Cloud is actually about an hour out from the stadium. The bulk of the private aircraft were going to three larger reliever airports inside the Twin Cities metro area, St. Paul downtown, which is STP, Flying Cloud, FCM, and Anoka County. I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce that or not, but A-N-O-K-A-A-N-E. I toured around uh, to the airports on Super Bowl Sunday at St. Paul downtown. They closed two of the three runways and were using them for the parking of aircraft. The same was being done at Flying Cloud at and Anoka County. Also at Minneapolis-St. Paul International, runway 422 was closed for parking of aircraft as well as along the west taxiway for 1735. It was quite a sight to see. And again, that was Matt Todd from White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Thank you. Matt, for kind of straightening me out on that one. And then also we have a flight attendant, an Acme flight attendant named Nanette, who sent this in. She said, Jeff, I just wanted to send this FYI to you. I'm an Acme flight attendant and have spent a lot of time on the MD-88. I was just listening to episode 310, which is our last episode. Wanted to send some feedback. Don't sell our beloved mad dog short. There have been two lithium-ion containment bags on the plane for close to a year. Oops, <laughs> I didn't know that. One is with the safety equipment in the slide-out compartment just forward of the first-class lav, and one is with the AED. We are taught 
that there is an extra pair of gloves in the flight deck? Question mark, question mark. You know, funny thing is on this last show, I mean, last show, last trip, <laughs> every trip's a show for me. Um, and uh, my first officer was doing the uh, interior inspection and he was grabbing stuff out of that little, what do you call that little uh, area of the observers, uh, oxygen mask. And there's like a little compartment down there. Next to, if you're sitting in the yeah, uh, jump I know, seat, I know, uh, your right leg, I, I don't know, little doghouse yeah, or whatever toilet, uh, they toilet. call that thing. It's, no, it's not the toilet, <laughs> unless we really, <laughs> really, really have to go. And then, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Um, anyway, the, he pulled out like these two packages and I'll go, oh, we just talked about that on the show, Love it. the containment things. I didn't realize we had those on there. And he goes, yeah, I think we're only supposed to have one up here, but we have two. We had two on that, on that airplane. I went, okay. So Nanette. I, uh, I am now, um, uh, set straight. Thank you very much. So I, I have to, uh, uh, let everybody know that, uh, we've, we've dipped below that 50% again. So we're we will try to make it up people. this episode. We're going to try. Yeah. Don't, don't hold your breath though. <laughs> all right. And that is all I have on the intro. If there's anything else that anybody wants to say before we, uh, do the, uh, coffee fund. Nope for me. Nope. Say it now or forever hold your peace. Okay, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, oh yeah. So while the Java Jive singers sing in the background, we'll talk about the coffee fund, and that's your way to support the show financially. And since the last episode, using the coffee fund classic method, Stephen Hurst, and a new patron, a new executive producer, Dirk Brom. Again, that's a... patron of patreon so you can learn how you can take part in the coffee fund cadre and and uh, giving us some financial support by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee thank you very much for everybody who has uh, supported us currently and in the past and even those of you who are thinking about it in the future a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Siamese, cabbage and greens. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Now, if you don't want me to sing anymore, then uh, <laughs> join the coffee fund. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Thank you very much, Coffee Fund singers. Oop. <laughs> Another beautiful So out. professional. Perfect. I know. <laughs> Only the best. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> okay. Uh, that'll be fixed in post. All right. And now it's time for the news. Stand by for news.
sure most of you have heard by now, just uh, what one or two days ago, a, uh, a Ukrainian made Antonov uh, 148, I believe, crashed uh, after just after takeoff, uh, leaving Moscow's. And I, I was trying to figure out exactly the way to pronounce that, and I did get a little bit of audio here. Let's see, it's Moscow's Domodedovo airport. And um, very good. Can you say that? Not in that accent. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, let's hear that again. She uh, she does a really nice job of pronouncing the D O M O D E D O V O airport. Domodedovo. Mm-hmm. I bet Pip uh, pronounces it exactly like that. <laughs> Our Pip just says, "Hey, Moscow." <laughs> anyway, uh, we should be laughing. Uh, they uh, the airplane crashed. Uh, shortly after takeoff, killing all 65 passengers and six crew on board. The Saratov Airlines jet vanished minutes after takeoff. Uh, the cause of the crash is unclear. This is a, the initial um, uh, piece of news from this, and it seems that uh, they were able to find the the black boxes. Uh, they're actually orange, the uh, cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, and they were able to analyze them. And according to the Aviation Herald, uh, on the afternoon of February 13th, the MAK, the um, uh, investigatory regulatory agency, uh, reported that decoding, or is that right, MAC? Is that what that is? The, um, the folks that uh, investigate these things? Could be wrong about that. Anyway, MAK reported that the flight data recorder needed to be torn down. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, skip, I'm going to the wrong paragraph. They reported that decoding of the FDR data had been completed. Preliminary analysis shows that the pedo heaters for all three pedo probes were off, while the pedo heatings had been turned on prior to the departure on the previous 15 flights. So I guess they had 16 flights on the flight data recorder. And so 15 of them, they had the pedo heat on and this accident flight they did not have the pedo heat on about two and a half minutes after becoming airborne a special situation developed at about 1300 meters of height and a speed of 465 to 470 kilometers per hour which is about 250 knots indicated when a disagreement between the speed readings number one and number three developed with the speed reading number two not registering number one was showing about 30 kilometers per hour uh, 15 knots more than number three and there was a message that was issued that they were made aware of no significant altitude deviations between the pedo systems were noted okay so the altimeters were acting properly at about 2,000 meters height speed reading number one began to reduce while number three increased another speed disagree message was issued the crew disconnected the autopilot and continued in manual control Speed readings from number three reached 290 to 300 knots indicated. Number one speed readings continued to decrease. 50 seconds after the autopilot was disconnected, the aircraft experienced vertical loads between one half G and one and a half positive Gs. And the number one speed reading reached zero. The number three began to decrease, reaching 200 kilometers per hour. The aircraft pitched down to about 30 to 35 degrees below the horizon. The vertical load was zero G. Before the collision with the ground, number three speed readings began to rapidly increase. 
reaching 800 kilometers per hour, which is 432 knots, just before impact. Uh, number one, speed readings remained at zero. The pitch angle remained at 30 degrees below the horizon until impact. Five seconds prior to impact, a right bank of 25 degrees developed. The MAK wrote, a preliminary analysis of the recorded information as well as an analysis of similar cases that occurred in the past suggests that the development of a special situation in the flight could be caused by incorrect data on the flight speed on the pilot's indicators, indicators, which in turn was apparently due to icing of the pitot probes when the heating systems are off. So there you have it. We have another instance. It's not the first time and uh, sadly probably will not be the last when um, a situation develops where the uh, the pitot tubes, the heated pitot tubes uh, get iced up. In the case of the uh, Air France uh, tragedy back in 2009, the, the pitot heating systems were on, but they were just overwhelmed. And in this case, uh, it looks like, it sounds like the uh, pitot heaters were not on. And uh, if you fly into icing conditions, it doesn't take long at all for those things to ice up. And when the uh, pitot tube gets iced up, uh, you have uh, erroneous readings. And that's when you have to revert to known pitch attitudes and known power settings. And uh, I think that every airline in the world has some kind of a procedure for unreliable airspeed, I would hope anyway. And, uh, and that's why we, you know, we, we preach that all the time on this show, that you should know for every phase of flight what the pitch picture should look like and what the power setting should be. And then you stay alive. You know, a lot of this information came out pretty quickly because this just happened the other day. So I wonder if there's other factors there that we're just not aware of yet or if they're pretty confident about that. So, yeah, it's in the preliminary stage yeah. of the investigation and that's what they've discovered so far. So, you know, I guess we can't, you know, we have to be careful about speculating, you know, too much until we get more information. Yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, ever since uh, Francis, it's been, um, they've emphasized in all our training um, just, you know, how to uh, fly the aircraft using just a power setting and an attitude. Uh, and that uh, if all else fails, that's what you revert to. You set the required power setting, set the required attitude, and you just sit on your hands for a little while. It doesn't matter what your SB indicators are reading. You'll be safe. And um, Airbus have got to the point now where uh, they have got a backup um, speed indicator, which doesn't rely on any pitot probes at all. And uh, you can uh, that will eventually come up, and uh, you can actually land the airplane on this. It's based all on the angle of attack. So um, you know this is just a very sad thing. Uh, I don't know of many airplanes, uh, certainly um, sophisticated ones, where you uh, and you're going to say that the mad dog, you'd have to do this, where you still have to turn your pitot heats on. So uh, uh, for us, it's uh, they will come on automatically. Uh, you know, during engine start, and uh, they will uh, remain on. You can manually turn them on uh, to a higher setting on the ground um, to defrost them if they're badly frozen overnight, for example. But they'll come on at a low setting, and they'll go to a high setting once you're airborne, and they stay on for the whole flight. So uh, it perhaps this aircraft wasn't that sophisticated, but it's such a shame. Yeah, every every airplane that I've flown so far. Um, you you have to manually turn the pitot systems on. But in in the airplane that Dana and I are flying right now, the Mad Dog, if you don't turn on the pitot 
static heat system, you'll have a message in your uh, overhead enunciation panel uh, basically telling you, hey, you know, you don't have your pedo heaters on and turn them on, dummy. Yeah. 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 And it, it would, what's kind of suspect to me is these uh, pilots are not necessarily unaccustomed to operating in cold weather. I mean, they are, after all, uh, you know, um, oh my God. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't remember the name of the airline. Uh, Aeroflot. I was having a brain fart there for a second. Aeroflot. Um, you know, they don't necessarily always operate in warm conditions. So this is actually a Saratov Airlines. It's not Saratov, uh, Aeroflot. Yeah. Did I miss that? I thought it was Aeroflot. Um, Antonov. It's an Antonov. That's right. It's the type aircraft. So, anyways, mm-hmm. Aeroflot. So, you know, Russian, Russian uh, pilots, just in general. You can cut that out, Jeff. Uh, Russian pilots, <laughs> <laughs> in general. Um, you know, they're operating in, in very cold temperatures. So, it'd be very surprising to me if they turned it off on purpose. Um, no, I can't, I can't imagine, imagine that. that. I, I, I'm leaning more towards, you know, again, we can't speculate. It's so early, and, and who knows how, how they'll or what type of findings they're going to find. Other than they release all the information real quick. So that, that kind of is a little suspicious to me. Um, but, you know, we can't speculate. I, I would I would imagine I, I don't see the pilots churning off the pedo heat, not especially not being cold, cold weather pilots. Yeah, but, yeah, for me, regardless of how they got themselves into that situation, if they knew the basic, you know, we called it in the Air Force, this, this is the way I learned how to fly, control performance. You know, you know that this is the pitch picture and this is the power setting, and then that's the control. And then the performance is you look at your performance instruments, your airspeed, your altimeter, et cetera. And if you are getting the desired performance, then you've set your controls properly. And uh, if you're not used to that kind of, you know, fundamental flying philosophy, then you get yourself in trouble when the auto flight system doesn't work. Well, you know, we're, you know, the AAURS, ours, um, attitude, uh, aircraft attitude, upset recovery, and whatever it stands for, the, the rest of the acronym that we're doing now. I mean, that's as a result of Air France. And so we are being trained. I don't know, can't speak to how they're training the pilots over in in uh, Russia, um, but maybe they haven't had that training. Maybe they forgot about their training. I, I don't know, but we, you know, one would would venture to guess if you're an experienced aviator that you do understand that the premise that you know there are times that you could lose your airspeed indicator. And we've always been taught if you you know if you climb and descend, the pitot tube is is blocked. You can have either increasing airspeed or decreasing airspeed, and you know, sometimes you can look at your instrument, you know, you, sometimes you can always look at your instruments and you should know about what your EPR settings are or your N1 settings are roughly and what, what type of airspeed you can get from them based on the pitch that you have. So those that's basic flying 101. But, you know, people have become too dependent on the technology. And I say people, I should say pilots, have become too dependent on technology. And Quite honestly, you know, part of this, the, the worldwide safety is that we have been trained to use utilize technology most of the time, and, and, and for the most part, the you know the the worldwide crash or, or incident rate is very low. But then you get these you know one offs, two offs that happen that really accentuates where we're where we're lacking, and that is that we've now turned to technology so much that 
our aviation, basic aviation skills are eroding a little bit, and I think that that may be a factor here. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure we can call it technology, Dana. After all, it was an airspeed indicator that failed, and they've got an attitude indicator, and they've got throttles. None of that is high-tech. None of that is automated or complicated. It's in every basic airplane. So this sounds to me not something that is related to automation. It's something that's related to basic flying skills. Well, that's but that's what I'm saying, Nick, is that, I, that we've been trained now to use automation so much that the basic flying skills have eroded. Yeah, and we've been preaching that for years on this show, and, uh, and, and the NTSB has been has been warning about this for many, many years. And, and finally the FAA and the, in the recent, uh, I don't know, five to 10 years have been warning uh, all the operators in the, in the U S at least that, uh, you know, you need to do something, your training departments, your, uh, your check airmen, uh, et cetera. You need to be preaching, um, the fact that you need to get back to the fundamentals of, you know, the basics of flying. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just maybe taking a while for everybody to you know, get on that track. I mean, but, uh, and all we have to do is look at, at that awful crash in uh, San Francisco. You know, too dependent on the automation. The automation wasn't doing what they were expecting it to. Well, when it wasn't doing what they were expecting it to do, they didn't really realize in time to click the automation off and, and know how to fly the airplane themselves. So, you know, that's that's what I'm getting at, Nick. I, I, it's not a matter of, of... I think we're all saying yeah. the same thing, basically, yeah. Just a matter of interest, a MAC is the Interstate Aviation Committee. I guess M-A-K oh. is the Russian words for that. Okay, thank you very much for that. I know that uh, the, the agency that seems to uh, do the investigation investigations is, uh, it starts with an R, like Rora stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent oh. Russian pronunciation. I'm sorry for my Russian accent. Yeah, good job. <laughs> Yeah, I, I need to work on that. Sorry. Mm. All right. Well, let's move on uh, to another crash. This one in the Grand Canyon of the United States. A tour helicopter carrying seven people on board crashed in the Grand Canyon, killing three people and injuring four others. Six passengers and a pilot were on board the Papillon Grand Canyon helicopter's chopper when it crashed around 5.20 p.m. Saturday on the Hula. Wallapai, thank you. Yep. Ooh, you knew that I one. I do. Awesome. Uh, near Quartermaster Canyon, Wallapai Nation Police Chief Francis Bradley said, the four who were injured were level one trauma patients and were being treated at the scene. An after-hours phone call, an email to Papillon. I'm saying that right, right? Papillon? Uh, that's a French that's, word. That yeah. means butterfly, butterfly right? Yeah. In French? were not immediately returned on Saturday. The company's website says it flies roughly 600,000 passengers a year on Grand Canyon and other tours. It also notes that it abides by flight safety rules and regulations that substantially exceed the regulations required by the Federal Aviation Administration. Anyway, they go on a little bit more talking about uh, the company and uh, their operations, uh, etc. But this was a Eurocopter EC-130 uh, helicopter uh, that crashed here. and. Uh, Nick, you, uh, you have something to add to this, I believe. Well, yeah. Um, Acme Red put out a little warning to us uh, because, of course, we uh, fly to uh, Vegas. And it said um, a helicopter belonging to Papillon 
crashed in the Grand Canyon, the uh, NTSB and FAA are investigating. Until further information is received, as a precaution, we recommend staff do not use this tour operator. So um, I reckon our our outfit has probably um, realized that this might be an issue, and until they're proved to be a safe um, operator, they're suggesting our crew stay away from them, which is very responsible of them. Um, yeah. They might be jumping the gun a bit, but uh, probably better to be safe than sorry. Always. I'm surprised they had that so quickly out there um, to protect uh, its employees. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm impressed. Steph? Nope. Sorry. I didn't really have anything to oh, add okay. there. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were saying something. I did. I'm I was sorry. just agreeing, but my audio oh, okay. is just terrible, I think, sometimes. Yeah. It's coming through. Well, hang the in there, I'm Steph. So sorry. sorry. <laughs> it's going to improve. I just know it. <laughs> it's... I guess, you know, having 194 down is just not enough for Dr. Steph. No, it's not. <laughs> Hardwired, Steph. Hardwired. It'll fix it. Pretty soon I'm going to have a 125-foot cable across my house. So. Love it. You can stretch one to, to Dana's house, then it'll work. Yes. Exactly. Several miles. Yep. No problem. <laughs> Do they make 300-something mile long Ethernet? Probably. Really, really expensive, though. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's move on to this. Um, EASA issues a, an emergency. Uh, what does the A stand for? Um, the, an EAD. Emergency. Airworthiness. Airworthiness directive. Directive. There we go. Uh, regarding A320neo and A321neo. A320 and A321neo engines and withdraws ETOPS certification with immediate effect. And uh, apparently, several of the engines uh, cre- or, uh, made by International Aero Engines, I believe, the PW1127, PW1130, and PW1133, I believe those are Pratt & Whitney's, but I think somewhere in here it said something about International AV, uh, Aero Engines. Oh, no, I'm looking here saying it says Pratt & Whitney. Further yeah, right. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, never mind then. Pratt and Whitney, um, the uh, geared turbofans, I believe, is what these are, uh, because they're the new engine option uh, engines for the A three twenty and three twenty one. Um, the those engines with high pressure compressor aft hub modification embodied from ESNP seven seven zero four five zero. Basically, what's happened here is they've had several. Um, Occurrences of engine in-flight shutdowns and rejected takeoffs have been reported on certain Airbus A320neo family airplanes. While investigation is going on to determine the root cause, preliminary findings indicate that the affected engines, which have high-pressure compressor aft hub modification, blah, 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 are more susceptible to these in-flight shutdowns. And it says, here's here's the bottom line. This condition, if not corrected, could lead to a dual engine in-flight shutdown. So that's not good. Not good for ETOPS, no. No, that's nope. cutting Sully territory. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we don't want to do that one again. Nope. Uh, it so, may not be a convenient puddle to jump into. That's right. Um, they, they reference here, this is, a, again, from the Aviation Herald, uh, a, a, an incident on the 4th of February, just a few days ago, um, a Spirit Airlines A320-200 November 
registration November 902 November Kilo, performing Flight 711 from Las Vegas to Oakland, California, was climbing out of Las Vegas when the crew stopped the climb at flight level 200 due to right-hand engine, it was a Pratt & Whitney 1127G, uh, right-hand engine vibrations. They shut the engine down, returned the aircraft to Las Vegas for a safe landing on runway 26 right about 30 minutes after departure. Now, in this case, I don't believe it was a uh, uncommanded in-flight shutdown. It sounds to me like the way this is worded that they actually shut down the, you know, manually shut down the engine because of the high vibrations. But um, apparently, they're citing instances like this that uh, uh, were the reasoning behind issuing this uh, emergency airworthiness directory or directive. So, and it says, uh, I guess the main restriction here is that if you're operating one of these airplanes that have the affected engines on, on both wings, uh, there's a possibility for that dual engine uh, shutdown. And I'm thinking, well, wouldn't they all have this like matching engines on either side? Maybe it's just like certain engines in the production lot are, are, are a little bit different. I don't know. I don't know. It makes sense to me that they would have the same engines, but yeah. maybe. Well, well, it appears to me that and you can't, you can mix and match them because, uh, if you've only got one on your aircraft, you can continue to fly them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it sounds to me like, uh, they can, uh, you know, do as they wish, but one on one side, one on the other, different one on the other. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm reading through this and it says, uh, I remember seeing it, it's like a serial number. And if you look at the top of the article, it says here, um, the three eleven twenty seven eleven thirty eleven thirty three inches with the high pressure compressor F hub yeah. modifications embodied from ESN P seven seven zero four five zero. So, an electronic serial number or something. I imagine it's it's a certain run of it. And I remember reading somewhere else uh, about this um, that it's it's only a certain run of the engine. It's not all of the engines. And perhaps maybe gotcha. some of these engines haven't gotten the modification, and when some some have, and I guess Correct. the modification was not a good thing. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah. I, I, I remember reading it somewhere else. I don't remember where it was, mm-hmm. but it's, it's only, it's only a certain run of this air, air, you know, on this engine. And I remember also reading that this engine or a form of it is also uh, in the C series, not the exact, but this type of the, the dual, um, dual shaft engine or was it? What's oh, the what geared turbofan? Gear geared turbofan. Um, that that that's the type of engine that they're putting into the C series, and I remember that being mentioned as well. So okay. Well, I hope they get this all straightened out, and they don't have any further uncommanded in-flight shutdowns. That's so always unwelcome. Yeah. Well, moving on to uh, more pleasant news. Well, I'm not sure if it's more pleasant or not, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's of a different on. nature anyway. <laughs> yep. From local uh, affiliate KTLA in Los Angeles, a man who police said set off a fire alarm at Los Angeles International Airport after he ran toward a plane just taking off on Saturday has been arrested, according to authorities. Now, I'm not sure if the journalist here really understands what taking off means, but let me continue here. No one was injured in the incident, according to LAX police, and the man did not make any threats and was not armed. Police said there appears to be no threat to the airport as a whole. 
While police initially said the man was on the plane, officials later clarified that he had actually run toward the plane after jumping an airport fence. An alarm went off after he pulled a fire extinguisher from an area area on the exterior of the plane. Oh, the exterior of the plane? Yeah, so apparently we have fire extinguishers hanging on the outside. Hey, is that for, you know, something on the exterior of the plane is on fire, so in flight you can climb out and just grab that fire extinguisher? Yeah, well, it gets better, though, Steph. It gets better. But wait, there's more. There's more here. At around 7.48 p.m., a pilot on the plane had spotted a shadow that was coming across a grassy area. Not the grassy knoll. No, not the knoll. It's just a grassy area. (laughs) Maybe a verge, perhaps. It could be a verge, yes. And up to the landing gear of the plane. Shortly thereafter, an alarm went off in the cockpit. What? (laughs) Okay. He told KTLA? Yeah. Uh, Through a camera under the aircraft... The pilot saw a man pull a fire extinguisher in from the plane in the wheel well. He could also see the man going back to the gate area through the camera. What what camera? This is a 737. They don't have cameras on the bottom of the airplane. No, they don't. An investigation soon found that the man had jumped over a fence along the perimeter of the airport, rushed toward the... Well, they already said that. He said the man appears to be under the influence of some drug or substance or may be mentally ill. And the same might be said of the person that wrote this article. (laughs) You know what I was thinking is that our our success rate is about 50%. Try to be 50%. I think the news and the media is more like... 10 to 15 percent we're, we're yeah. doing a lot better than, than this particular <laughs> I think so. news media yeah. i'm feeling good about this actually i know we, we got this so when officers confronted him the the man uh he told them that he was trying to get back down to downey <laughs> back to downey well, a fire extinguisher? <laughs> i don't know the plane involved in the incident was sent back to the airport to, sent back to the airport apparently it somehow got away from the airport it was sent back to the airport to have k9 units sweep through it uh, the flight was just leaving its terminal when the incident happened, even though the first paragraph said it was on takeoff. Um, after the incident, it was powered down and brought back to the gate where it was departing. So this is a really, really well-written. Yeah. Uh, no flights were delayed except the one involved, and Southwest is the only airline affected. Clearly, because every airplane on, you know, at the, that um, airline has uh, cameras on it. So And... If- Yep. And fire extinguishers that and are mounted extinguishers. on the outside. But they yeah. do, they do because today's Valentine's Day, they do have a big heart on the bottom of the airplane. There you go. That makes it all. That is factual, folks. That's the truth. That we know. Okay. This is such hogwash. It's not even funny. Yeah. The guy ran out of the terminal, clearly. I Beyond that, I don't believe anything. Yeah. Well, it said a couple places that he, he jumped a perimeter fence. But yeah, he was just he trying to. Ter- but he, he ran out of the terminal somehow. Yeah, well, but he's trying to get back to Downey. I mean, it all makes sense oh, to me. Over the river, through the woods, <laughs> over a perimeter so fence. Back to Downey we go. <laughs> Did they walk both ways uphill in two feet of snow to school all their life too? Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Sure. I'm still trying to work out what alarm alarm went off in the cockpit. Yeah. What Was alarm the, goes off? The external fire extinguisher has fallen off. Alarm or if- what? It's the uh, uh, intruder on the exterior of your aircraft <laughs> alert. It's like the the airplane security system. Exactly. In, security in system. all fairness, I don't know the 737 folks. In all fairness, like on our airplane, there is an external fire extinguishing system 
on the aircraft. So maybe that's what the in, in not in defense of this journalist who apparently well, doesn't know what in the world that blighty you talking pull about. That extinguisher from yes, the you wheel. can. You, know, you can't pull it out, but you oh, certainly well. could pull and activate the extinguishing system for the APU. Or there's a exterior handle. I think that's way too advanced for this reporter to yeah. ever have grasped that. So, but I was just, you know, saying on the mm. outskirts of reality here, which is what this really is. Okay. Well, Nico in the chat room says it could be the EFE HFO alarm. I'm not sure exactly what that is. But. Or the hi-ho, hi-ho, <laughs> off to jail we go. Hi-ho, well, he, hi-ho. he does fly the, does he, I forget, Nico, do you fly the 7-3? I think he does. Oh, he might. We might have an expert in the uh, chat room. Maybe he can straighten this out for us. Anyway, yeah, who knows exactly what it was that this person was doing and what kind of fire extinguishing system he was. At any uh, rate, they were up to no good. Up to no good. Oh, that means I should have have, uh, played this. Darn it. Don't worry, Jeff. It's only 311 shows. You'll get the hang of it. (laughs) I'm I'm shooting for perfection at some point. (laughs) Got a long way to go, though. Nico did clarify. He says it was the external fire extinguisher has fallen off alarm. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) Sending us above the 50% mark. Thank you, sir. (laughs) All right. That's enough of that. Um, did you hear uh, about your uh, London City Airport, uh, Nick, being closed? Well, actually not until I read this. I oh. Went, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think it was on Monday. Yeah, this they, was uh, at least in the news. Pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard oh, well, about I've, it. I've got a cold. I know. Oh, well, I don't then know that's what that's going to do with anything, but perhaps it stops <laughs> me from watching the news. That was not in the news. That, oh. Nick's uh, got a cold. Yeah, I know. It should have, that should be headlining. So you want to you want to take this one on, uh, Steph? Tell us why the London City Airport was closed. Uh, sure, I can do that. This is a article from the Independent.co.uk, and it says London City Airport closed. All flights canceled after unexploded Second World War bomb bomb discovered. Um, so sixteen thousand passengers booked to fly in and out of London City Airport on the busiest day of the week had their flights canceled as a Second World War bomb is made safe. Uh, the airport adjoins George V dock, as I say that normally. Um, or George or V. George V. <laughs> George like, the the George, George the Fifth, or just George Fifth. Anyway. And it's not George the Fifth duck. No, it's, doc. it's, right. it's duck. George V's duck. duck. Yeah. Where no, duck. <laughs> so anyway, uh, there was a unexploded bomb found early on Sunday morning uh, during work to expand the Docklands hub. So the Metropolitan Police said specialist officers and the Royal Navy have attended and confirmed the nature of of the device. At 10 p.m. on Sunday, a 214 meter exclusion zone was implied or imposed to ensure that the ordinance can be safely dealt with whilst limiting any risk to the public. So some residents were evacuated, roads were closed, and apparently this also closed the airport for safety purposes. So, but I believe um, they've since dealt with the ordinance and uh, it's they've basically gotten rid of it and the area is safe and the airport is back up and running as far as I understand without going through this whole lengthy article. Yeah. Yeah. It was a 500 kilogram 
Uh, bombs. So that's like uh, 1,200 pound bomb. That's pretty big, uh, pretty big old bomb. Now, my funny enough, my next door neighbor, um, he since um, moved because uh, he got posted, was a Royal Naval bomb disposal officer in one of his uh, jobs. And that, I can promise you, having chatted to him about it, is one damn dangerous job. Because not only are you going down into almost impossible diving conditions, excuse me, you're uh, dealing with World War II, and almost exclusively these old uh, weapons uh, from World War II are very unstable. And then you've got to, well, they usually like to uh, let them off where they are. But obviously, if, uh, if it was too close to the airport or buildings, they had to move the damn thing, which, was, which would not have been a nice job. No, I was very impressed with the fact that uh, they they moved that they got the thing out of the water and took well, it, it out was, to yeah. sea. It was in a bed of silts, fifteen meters underwater. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That would not have been a pleasant job. No, because, it seems like uh, a very dangerous job to me. Absolutely, because uh, you know uh, the shockwave in water. If one of these things go on, if the immediate explosion doesn't kill you, the shockwave can you know do really nasty things to you. No, Micah in the chat room asks a very, very pertinent question. Does London City Airport have an ordinance ordinance? <laughs> very good. Ha, ha, ha. But bam. But there Rimshot. are an amazing number of uh, unexploded bombs discovered all the time in the UK, particularly around London, where so many were dropped. Well, and, yeah, but uh, we now know why, why, why uh, the Germans lost the war. Well, half the, the stuff they dropped, yeah, half the bombs they dropped didn't go off. That might be part of it. It's a very small part of it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then finally. Wow. Do we really want to talk any more about London City Airport? I guess it inconvenienced about 16,000 passengers on Monday, but they got it up and running, I think, sometime yesterday, Tuesday. One of the more surprising things to me uh, was just reading through some of the tweets about this. Uh -huh. There's a lot of people out there who clearly speak English as their native language who don't know what the word ordinance means in terms of referring to uh, bombs or explosives. So that was, that was kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was just funny. There were a lot of people going, what does that mean? I don't know what this means. Why is it? Couldn't you just say bomb? No. Uh, one more news item and then we'll move on to the feedback. Um, I was showing up for my trip on Monday and the gate agent was saying something about, well, you know, something, something about Southwest uh, canceling all their flights yesterday for no de-icing fluid. And I went, huh? I didn't hear about that on the news. And then uh, saw this in one of the news sources. Southwest Airlines canceled 250 flights at Midway International Airport in Chicago on February 11th, which was Sunday. Due to a shortage of de-icing fluid, it was the third time in two months that de-icing problems complicated its Chicago operations. The carrier now says it has secured additional de-icing fluid vendors to curb the shortages. Well, who knew that they would need fluid up there in, at, in Chicago? I mean, It normally... never snows. There's never inclement <laughs> weather. It's never cold or icy. Yeah. It's like a tropical paradise. Apparently, they were having some problems with one of the, uh, the glycol uh, holding storage tanks or something like that. A valve was not working properly. And I don't know. Um, and apparently they're getting a lot more snow and uh, wintry conditions than normal. 
and uh, it just caught up with them. And uh, yeah, I just of, get a get a hose and siphon it out, but don't if, don't remember, forget to spit if you get yeah. it in your mouth because that stuff's nasty. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, we don't want to we don't want to uh, pounce on on them too too badly. I mean, I think every airline has probably had one of these kind of uh, uh, yeah, instances. Just... I, I know that we did Acme um, several years ago at St. Louis. The station manager um, didn't order enough, and it was like pretty late in the year, like mid March or something. And I'm not sure if he just neglected to, or maybe he was just thinking, "I'm going to gamble and not order any more de-icing fluid because you know it's probably we're probably not going to need it." Well, they needed it, and they had to shut down all the flights uh, one day, which caused a huge disruption <laughs> in our schedule. But uh, yeah, so it does happen. So, all right. With that, I think it's time for us to move on to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. All righty. Let's start with this one. Uh, Steve Horn sent, Captain Steve sent this in. Um, he said, um, this could have been bad. Note the English as second language confusion with the Cathay first officer. So he sent a link to a YouTube video, um, and this occurred at the Hong Kong airport. And and what what's the uh, what's the name of the new airport, uh, Captain Nick? Chad Blackcock. Okay. And, uh, what? I'm sorry. We were talking about the airport, what? Uh, Nick. What, what did you just say? <laughs> what? Chad Blackcock. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I can see why you're amused, Dana. <laughs> well, I mean, really? It's okay, a family so, show. So anyway. Uh, it's Chinese. From uh, uh, VAS Aviation, V-A-S Aviation, um, a YouTube channel that you should subscribe to because it's got some interesting stuff on there. Uh, a Hong Kong Airlines Airbus A330-343 performing flight 709 from Hong Kong to Dampasar. Um, I don't know where that is. Um, and then a Cathay Pacific Boeing 747-800 freighter performing flight 71 from Anchorage to Hong Kong um, had a conflict when the Airbus 330 was cleared for takeoff while the 747 was still crossing the runway on the far end of the runway, the departure end. And uh, let's play a little so bit of, yeah. Denpasar is in Indonesia for anyone who's oh, dying to know. Denpasar. Thank you, Indonesia. Thank you, Steph. And Bali. To be Bali. Ooh. Bali, hi. Cafe Zero Seven One uh, Hold at Juliet One One Holding. Hold at Juliet One One. Cafe Zero Seven One Juliet One One Cross from Zero Seven Right. Juliet Cross Seven Right at Juliet One One Cafe Zero Seven One. Okay, so they just gave crossing clearance. Now, some of this has been compressed a bit uh, to the um, Cathay Pacific freighter at the far end of the runway. And then it wasn't long thereafter that he clears the uh, this airplane for takeoff on that runway. Runway 07 right, clip takeoff, Mania 709. Cathay GSA-1 is clear runway, it's, clear, it's across the runway. I say again, Cathay GSA-1 is clear the runway. 
We are not clear of the runway. We're on the runway. Cathay 071 is on the runway crossing. Venia 709, I'm stopping immediately. Venia yeah, stopping, uh, beam Juliet 2, stopping. Venia 709. Cathay 071, contact ramp 12255. This is an instance of somebody listening to what was happening. Um, and instructions given to other aircraft while on frequency. And I'm guessing that the the first voice that we hear from the Cathay Pacific was the first officer, and maybe English is not uh, his native language. And then the second voice that we heard from the Cathay Pacific it sounded to me like an American English accent. Uh, and I'm assuming that was the captain because um, he wanted to clarify that, no, they were not clear of the runway. They were actually crossing the runway. They were still on the runway. And, hey, you just cleared this other airplane for takeoff on the same runway. And uh, that's when the tower controller finally went, ooh, okay. Uh, uh, what was the what's the name of the other airline? Uh, it starts with a B. Anyway, um, told them to uh, stop there takeoff roll and apparently they had just started to roll so it was a very it was a low speed regime kind of a an abort situation but it was a heads up uh listening on frequency which is important yeah that was good the uh, first off obviously picked up the problem but uh, in the stress of the moment trying to get an urgent call out used the wrong word so he said uh i've already forgotten what he said he said but, clearing he said clearing at first and then he yeah. said crossing, and then he went back to clearing. And I think you're right. It was just like, like I can't believe <laughs> you've yeah, cleared a this airplane for takeoff. Yeah, I, I rang the captain was an Aussie myself. Oh, but, really? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, he obviously piped up when he – I mean, uh, to be absolutely fair, there's not a huge amount of danger. It's right at the other end of the runway. It's a pretty long runway. And 99 times out of 100, that 330 is going to be airborne well before they reach. But that's not the point. The point is you had a potential conflict. If the 330 had tried to stop and needed all that runway, or he had been very heavyweight and struggled to get off, then I uh, lost an engine, uh, then uh, there could have been could have been an absolute disaster. But uh, just goes to show. Um, the only good thing I comes out of this i think is the controller's actions once he realized there had been the cock up he was very quick to get everything organized uh he, he didn't kind of lose the plot as a lot of people might have done when they just realized that they have uh, had a major boo-boo um he sort of kept his uh, pup in a pile i thought and uh, kept things well organized but of course his mistake in the first place for clearing that aircraft to take off when the runway wasn't uh, safe it's very important to keep your poop in a pile. Absolutely. It's our yep. motto around here, I think. It'll keep it very neat and tidy. <laughs> yes. Good points. Good points. And uh, yeah, good heads up by the uh, Cathay Pacific uh, pilots and also good uh, controlling. Uh, even though the controller made the mistake to begin with, it was uh, he recovered very well, I think. Yeah. I have to say, uh, having been out there many, many times, uh, the Hong Kong Chinese are very good controllers. They're very good at procedural stuff, and they're very good at uh, everyday stuff. They're not 
brilliant at thinking outside the box. But um, and when the pressure's on, you know, like most people, they they do have a few problems. But generally speaking, it's in that area one of the best uh, uh, airports you can fly into for um, air traffic. Excellent. Moving on to this next item, uh, Kevin sent to us, CBC News. Pilot pilotless planes are coming, but will passengers accept them? And we'll include the link in the show notes so you can read the entire article. He says, Captain Jeff, assume uh, I'll be one of the numerous APG listeners that will forward this article to you. However, that won't stop me. Uh, I do have a question on Category 3 auto landings. When does the captain take control of engine power and braking after touchdown? In closing, I'll offer the traditional closing of blue skies and appropriate winds. Respectfully, Kevin St. John. And he says, P.S. I'm not flying on anything that doesn't have a human overseeing the automation from the cockpit. I'm with you, man. Yep. Um, Me too. Uh, let's see. So the question he has for us, uh, the uh, Category 3 auto landings, I guess it depends on the airplane that you're flying and perhaps the company's standard operating procedures. Uh, but on every airplane that I've flown with Category 3 auto landing capability, um, the, uh, well, I, I guess it depends on the individual captain too. There's no set point at which you have to, well, let me back up. There, there is a point Retard. where I, I was, uh, I was there, about to say yeah, five seconds at the touchdown. There is going to, there is a point where it will just kind of relinquish all the automation and uh, relinquish control of the airplane to the captain. Uh, but that does not preclude the captain from taking over once the aircraft has touched down on the runway. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a combination of all that. And it's really hard to describe unless you've actually sat through a real auto land. And, uh, and basically what you're doing is when the airplane is flying it, you're flying, you're following through and all the controls. And so you kind of feel almost like you're actually flying the airplane, even though the controls are being manipulated by the auto flight system. But once the airplane is on the ground and the nose wheel is coming down and you're putting the engines in reverse thrust and you're feeling the auto brake system come on uh, and the airplane starting to decelerate, decelerate and all the things are happening uh, all uh, in, a, in a very quick pace, uh, then uh, it's just kind of like you've, you just feel when it's the right time to, to uh, disconnect things and take control of the airplane and continue through with the entire landing. Uh, but as uh, Dana just mentioned on the airplane that we fly specifically, after five seconds after uh, touchdown, we'll spin up the uh, the airplane basically says, you have the airplane. I mean, he, it doesn't say that, but basically that's what's happening. On the uh, Airbus, it'll uh, ask you to retard the throttles. And if you don't do it, it'll eventually do it on its own anyway. Obviously, if you've left the throttles in the uh, in the climb detent, which is the position they're in when uh, the auto thrust is engaged um, that you can't get at the auto, <laughs> the reverses. So you're eventually going to have to pull the levers back anyway because otherwise you can't reach forward and grab the reverses. So, uh, But uh, in the airplane, it will do it itself. But our, our cue is when it asks you to, you retire the throttles. It's normally around um, 20 feet for us. And so when you, that's during an auto land? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it happens on every landing. Right. If you've got the auto thrust engaged, but mm -hmm. on the auto land, 
um, because you're not hand flying the airplane, you tend to wait, at least I tend to wait for the cue before I close the throttle because because it doesn't, the auto land doesn't quite fly the airplane the same way I do. No. Uh, and uh, it could, you know, so sometimes if I'm a little hot, I might close the throttles a little earlier just to get rid of a few knots and uh, but vice versa. If I'm a bit slow, the auto land tends to be much more accurate. Yeah, on our airplane, we uh, go in through 50 feet and enters the flare mode and basically not long thereafter uh, starts retarding the throttles um, and uh, you're just supposed to let it do it <laughs> and assume it's going to touch down at the right speed and the right place and that kind of thing. And it does a pretty good job, actually. Dana, you probably sat through a few. Yeah, the uh, just recently, I didn't mention it. I, I, I think it was three or four weeks ago when we did a show and we were talking about uh, things that, you know, normally what we do at the Bean Show. I didn't talk about this one. Or maybe I did. I can't remember. But so anyways, we're coming in on a, what was going to be a no kidding cat three landing and with bad weather in Atlanta. And fortunately for us, it didn't, didn't turn out that way. It turned out to be about cat two ish. Well, the airplane was coming down for its auto land. And when we got to the 50 foot market, did the retard flare, which is what it's supposed to do. And starts flaring the airplane. Well, the airplane started trimming and trimming and trimming. And it just started instead of it got down to about 20 feet and just stayed there. And next thing you know, it's starting to fly away from the runway. There's supposed to be an auto land. That's and an unsatisfactory auto land. <laughs> very unsatisfactory because shortly thereafter, you know what happened? The autopilot kicked off and said, I'm done. At 20 feet, decelerating an IMC. It's supposed to be an auto land where you're not supposed to see anything. All right. So now... Thank God we recognized it real quick. I said, you know, Captain, you you know, throws you, you, you the airplane starting to pitch up. You know, he was outside, of course, so he's looking, and I and I was watching inside. He was, was outside. The, what is he looking for? That fire? <laughs> he was looking for the say, fire. There was something on fire. <laughs> he was looking for that <laughs> person running. This is a terrible flight. Well, the <laughs> alarm went off. Oh yeah. Must be there. <laughs> yes. So, you know, he's looking outside for, you know, the visual cues for the landing, and I'm inside watching all the instruments, and I said, Captain, we're, we're climbing away from the runway, and he said, yeah, I see that, and next thing you know, the autopilot kicked off, Unfortunately, you know, he grabbed it and was able to put it down, but it was not a very, it was very surprised we didn't drive the mains through the through the wings. It was a very hard landing. Out of options so, and air, airspeed, right, or airspeed and I, options? We were there. I mean, that was it. Even if you brought the engines up, up to you know, full power. We had down. you know yeah. the two or three second lag. We were, we were going to hit. Yeah. So we were very lucky in that one. But uh, that taught me a very valuable lesson. Don't, don't always trust and be on top of one hundred percent of the time because I've always thought you know, thought that this was a very reliable system. And in that case, it proved to me if we were actually Cat Three RVR, you would have had to go around. We were too we were too slow and too low, man. It, we would have contacted the runway no matter what. If we didn't stall first. Yeah, but we'd just like playing the subtle Dana. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But that was, I mean, all kidding aside, that was very serious. Yeah. It was a serious, serious situation. So we put a nice, tidy uh, write up in the logbook about that one. I think uh, they obviously took the auto land capability of that aircraft away. Right. 
All right. Very, very interesting. Thank you for the input on that, um, Dana. And I hope that we answered Kevin's question about when the captain takes control of engine power and braking after touchdown. Um, Jordan writes in. He says, uh, this sounds like a crappy situation. I thought this might be a good addition for the new segment. No, Jordan, it's a good addition for the feedbacks uh, segment. Uh, he sends a link to a bbc.co.uk article. A flight with 85 plumbers on board turns back due to All a... my relatives? Oh, wait. Your, your relatives? Different, different types oh, of... Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. Plumbers. I didn't even think of that when I saw a plumber. Of course you do. Yeah, nice one. That's your last name. It was a family um, gathering. It was. It was. Maybe that's and why they couldn't fix the loo. Because I, they weren't actual plumbers. No, they were actually plumbers. Uh, the article says, how many plumbers does it take to fix the toilets on a Norwegian Airlines flight? Boom, bam. The answer, it would seem, is more than the 85 who were flying from Oslo to Munich. And uh, 20 minutes after takeoff, the aircraft was forced to return to the tarmac after a fault with the toilets was discovered. And because the problem had to be fixed from the outside, there was little the plumbers on board could do to help. And I dare say, even if they had, they could fix it from the inside, they probably, unless they were aviation mechanics, they probably wouldn't know how to fix it either. So, anywho, um, we'll put a link to this uh, tweet in the show notes. But, um, oh, I think the best part of this was uh, toward the end here, uh, somebody uh, was, uh, I'll never forget spending two hours on the tarmac, he wrote, then hearing someone scream, we'll just use a bucket when they came on the loudspeaker to announce it would be another 45 minutes. But unfortunately, that is not an option. So can I ask the obvious? Where they go when they're waiting for it to be fixed? Um, to the toilet? Mm. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure. Where do they go? I mean, if they're on stuck on an airplane where they go to the bathroom oh well i think they got off the air they were only 20 minutes out so they weren't on the airplane they weren't stuck on the airplane for very long so okay. it wasn't a, an issue in, in this case um ivor uh who i believe is with us and he was earlier in the chat room with us as we're recording this live sent this in to us a while back he goes uh okay here we go are you guys holding out on us spray can nielsen dirty sky anderson not forgetting Blue Juice Dana, as ever, the good doctor comes out of this with a clean bill of health slash blame. Does this provide the answers we demand? And then he has a link to an article, Chemtrail Conspiracy Theorists, the people who think governments control the weather from BBC News. And uh, we'll put the uh, link to this in the show notes as always. But um uh, the article starts by saying those white lines in the sky trailing behind jet planes are puffy or puffy fl plumes. Well, that's hard for me to say. They are puffy plumes of water vapor. But online, some have twisted them into evidence of a secret plot to control weather or poison the environment. Why are wild theories about contrails and other phenomena so persistent on social media? Because the masses are asses. Susan Mayer doesn't like the term conspiracy theory. She says, when I use it on a phone call to arrange an interview, uh, she tells me that, it, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the lady that uh, wrote this article, I guess. Um, she tells me that it was invented by the CIA to discredit those who question the government. 
Huh? <laughs> but as the founder of Bye Bye Blue Sky, a group established to raise awareness of so-called chemtrails and what she claims is a massive secret government conspiracy to control the weather, it's one the Canadian is used to hearing. I ask what we move beyond the notion I ask that we move beyond the notion that this is a conspiracy theory, she says. Twenty to thirty years ago we never saw these trails. We had a beautiful blue sky. Well, that is not true. Um, I think at some point here in the article, they said that you can look at some photos from World War II where you can clearly see uh, contrails coming from the backs of these World War II aircraft. So it's not something that were just something that was just invented uh, to spew toxic chemicals in the in the sky, as uh, some people believe. Uh, there's a professor, David Keith, of Harvard University, um, is amongst the most prominent scientists calling for further research. <laughs> okay. You have professors at Harvard that support this, or am I reading that wrong? No, I think you're reading that correctly. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's, there's, a certain, there's a certain group of the population that just believes everything is conspiracy. <laughs> I think that uh, sometimes the people that come up with these government conspiracy theories give the government uh, way too much benefit of the doubt that they can actually figure out how to do something like that. Well, all I can say is that the mind-altering chemicals that they're putting the, in these chemtrails aren't working very well if they're not getting to these people or perhaps they just they never take off their tinfoil hats. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the good news is uh, a 2016 study by the Carnegie Institute for Science and the University of California, Irvine, surveyed 77 leading atmospheric scientists and geochemists. All but one, 98.7%, reported no evidence of a secret large-scale atmospheric spraying program. The one scientist who dissented recorded unusually high levels of atmospheric barium in a remote area with low levels of barium in the soil. But to get from that one result to the idea that we were being secretly sprayed with chemicals requires a monumental leap of faith. And then I'll add stupidity. Yeah. yeah. It's, this, is, this is absurd. Yeah. It, it just goes along with the, uh, the, the world is flat people and, you know, the cults and Waco, yeah. Texas and so forth and so on. It just, yeah, it, it's almost a waste of our time. Yep, it really is. So Ivor... Thanks for wasting our time by sending that in. <laughs> no, that wasn't that wasn't meant to. to <laughs> I know it was Ivor. <laughs> we were just kidding. We HR, you, where are you, HR? She's gone. She's not monitoring she's us. We can the, get away with murder right now. I can see her on the phone in the corner, and she's just trying to get a hold of security to escort <laughs> Dana out of the building. Uh oh! <laughs> wow! Really? Yep. Yeah. That's so what she told me. Don't be Bye -bye. surprised if uh, hotel security doesn't start knocking on your door. Uh, yeah, she had I'll to take go back a, and eat my dinosaur barbecue then. Uh, okay, that's what you're munching on there, huh? Mm -hmm. nice. I, I missed it once. Um, so, yes, uh, Miss Stephanie had to uh, take a work-related call. So she's not with us at the moment. We're going to push on without her, though. Um, this is an interesting one, I think. I need to play this little clip here. Love is in the air Everywhere I look around Love is in the air Every sight and every sound 
Virgin Atlantic says it will feature love suites on some of its New York-bound jets that are designed with couples in mind. It will have three love suites in, it's like the love boat, I guess, love suites in some Airbus A330-200 planes that are joining the fleet in March, along with other special seating arrangements. The love suites are ideal for dual dining, watching movies together, or catching up on, quote, work, according to the airline. The seats are located in the center of the cabin. Oh, great. Uh, The revamped upper-class seating arrangements include freedom suites and extra private corner suites in the jet's upper cabin. All three private corner suites will include free Wi-Fi messaging and barista-style coffee menu. The planes will come with names such as Strawberry Fields, Honky Tonk Woman, Scarlett O'Hara, and Daydream Believer. All 19 of the upper-class seats turn into beds. Virgin Atlantic's 330s, which were purchased from another airline, are being reconfigured uh, and will initially serve flights from Manchester, England, to New York City, Boston, San Francisco, and Barbados. Well, there you go. I have saw, saw a picture of the cabin. It's not the usual uh, upper-class suites, but uh, the chairs are like fore and aft, and the middle two are snug together. And um, I'm guessing that the little partition that goes between them can be removed. So literally, you're just like um, you would be in sort of a premium seat sitting beside the one you uh, like uh, with the barrier removed, uh, but except you're in a nice big seat. So uh, I guess, yeah, they're not going to make them particularly private. So I don't think you can get up to much, but there you go. Uh, not like some of those... Uh... Uh, like which airline is it? Emirates that has the uh, like the oh, yeah, the one the Steph was in that was yeah. very private, yeah, very cool. She had three windows there, though, so and she was by she herself, was... too, though. You know, what a waste! Yeah, I know, that's a bit sad. <laughs> yeah, funny enough, I, I spotted Honky Tonk Woman, um, on a I don't know if we've got it a little bit later in the feedback, uh, on a flight radar track. Doing something special for, uh, are we going to that later? No, we're not. Uh, but funny, you should mention that when I saw that, uh, what you were to what you're referring, I thought to myself, I could play this again. Love is in the air. Everywhere I look around. And if you looked around over the skies, well, if you watched uh, one of the flight radar 24 or the like, uh, tracking sites, uh, you would see that they you know, they leave a trail of their actual path, and what was the what was the path that uh, was left, uh, Captain Nick? Well, they someone uh, drew a very acceptable heart uh, just uh, north of Cornwall uh, in the southwest of England, uh, just over the uh, up over the um, uh, the estuary there, the big estuary. So nice piece of clear airspace, nice big heart. And it turns out it was, uh, oh, Honky Tonk Woman was the name of the aircraft, and the registration was GV. Now, who sung Honky Tonk Woman? It would have been, oh, come on, help me. Um, uh, was it not Elvis Presley, was it? No. No, who sang it was it? Oh, Honky Tonk. Uh, Rolling Stones. Oh, okay. He sang M-I-C, Mick, I think. GV ah, Mick. Mick Jagger. So, yeah, for Mick Jagger. Okay. So uh, that was uh, that was a, n- a neat trick I thought on uh, on Valentine's Day. That Virgin Atlantic, they're very clever. 
they get everywhere. And have you seen the um, the one that they've just rolled out of the paint shop at uh, Manchester? No. That one, instead of having the usual Virgin Atlantic written on the side, it's got something like a big thank you from Virgin Atlantic. Or it's got a big, it fills the whole fuselage. Um, and it's got a special uh, flying lady at the front instead of the usual one. This lady is uh, there holding a glass of champagne up. So uh, they've done a special job for this uh, aircraft that's rejoined their fleet. Looks very good, very fancy. They say it's a big thank you to all their employees who work so hard to get the aircraft back on the line so quickly. Very cool, very cool. Love it. All right, um, moving on to some audio feedback from... uh, I'm sorry, Lucas, uh, the flying Kiwi. And, uh, I promised this, I don't know, for a few episodes now, and we're actually going to play this now. And, uh, let's take a listen from the flying Kiwi. Hey, uh, APG, this is, uh, the flying Kiwi, Lucas Diamond, uh, speaking to you from Wilmington Airport. And I've just had the weirdest experience, um, uh, an FO and a captain have just come off a, a flight. Uh, looks like an international flight. Probably, uh, not sure if it was a, yeah, certainly wouldn't have been the 777 into Wellington. I'm not sure uh, what it would have been. Uh, maybe an A320. Um, anyway, uh, the FO looked around about, now I'm not being ageist, but he looked around about sort of Captain Jeff, Nick's age. Um, but the captain, the, the four-striper, um, I'll tell you what, if he wasn't in uniform, I would have said he was 12. <laughs> um, I, it, was, it was quite amusing. Um, they were both chatting away, and uh, there's this, there was this, it, it was almost like bringing your, bringing your kid to work day. <laughs> so uh, I thought it was uh, rather interesting, that the, the massive differences in age uh, compared to seniority, which is... Uh, which, of course, you know, doesn't say anything about flying ability, but, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting considering Nick used to be called the boy pilot. Well, I, I think I found his uh, civil equivalent. Anyway, uh, sorry to spam you with more uh, feedback, but uh, I thought that might be, uh, be amusing. Anyway, fine, Kiwi's out. Bye. That would be uh, kind of unusual to see. Uh, you know, you normally expect to see the captain be the old gray-haired uh, man of uh, our age, uh, Captain Nick. and uh, Distinguished the, looking. Distinguished, exactly. And the first officer to be the young looking like they weren't old Lots enough of, to shave. What's that? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, but in this case, it was uh, reversed. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting observation by Lucas. Well, I'm wondering if, um, I mean, it wasn't the case. It was the case in the UK a while back where you couldn't be a captain beyond the age of 60, but you could uh-huh. work up to 65 as a first officer. So a lot of our captains, who, particularly the ones who were in their third or fourth marriages, had decided they needed to keep earning. So they, um, they remustered, as it were, as a first officer, you know, dropped a stripe, climbed in the right hand seat and carried on working, and exactly that situation might have occurred. And I don't know if perhaps in New Zealand they have a similar rule, you can fly beyond a certain age as a first officer, but you couldn't continue uh, in the captain's seat. When I was flying a first officer on the uh, L-1011, international especially, I always was the youngest pilot in that cockpit because, uh, well, first of all, we we, we ended up 
getting some of the professional engineers from previous airlines that we had merged with. Uh, in other words, they were permanent flight engineers. They they could not move to the right seat or the left seat because they didn't have pilots. Or, well, they may have been pilots, like private pilots or whatever, but they uh, didn't have the appropriate um, uh, certificates to operate the uh, air carrier uh, airliners. And so they that was their career, uh, flying as a flight engineer on a three-pilot or three-cockpit crew member airplane. Uh, but we back before we changed the mandatory retirement age to 65, um, the retirement age was 60. And folks, as you mentioned, Nick, were in a situation where they were perhaps uh, supporting several ex-wives and they needed to have uh, apparently the, some of the stories of mistresses. some of the stories that I heard <laughs> back in the 60s and 70s that these guys were flying in my goodness it's no wonder that some of these guys had multiple marriages uh, but uh, anyway the uh, so they they were too old to fly uh, according to the FAA uh, as pilots, but they could fly as flight engineers. And and you make a good point. Uh, perhaps they have a rule where they can fly, you know, uh, further into their career as a, as a first officer and not in command. But uh, so usually the L-1011s that I'd fly to Hawaii, uh, the oldest person up in the cockpit would be the guy sitting behind me, the flight engineer. The uh, second oldest guy was this, the guy sitting over there in the captain's seat, usually in the mid-50s. And then me, uh, I was about 39, 40 years old. I was the youngster. It was kind of cool. <laughs> the uh, flight attendants always, you know, Excellent. called me like a young pup, even though I didn't yeah, feel yeah, like a young pup. Right. I've just found a picture of uh, Virgin's uh, GV nap. They've actually written a big Virgin Atlantic thank you all the way down the fuselage. So that's good. I saw that. Oh. Oh, she's back. I'm back. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just disappeared without telling anyone what was going on. Well, we worked it out. We could see you in the corner of the picture on the I telephone. Know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we thought you were calling hotel security in Rochester. I, I was, actually. So, you know, there's going to be a knock on your door in a minute. Just, no, just kidding. <laughs> we warned him. No, I apologize. That was work-related, sort of, and I'm sad I answered the call, but it was two, <laughs> two phone calls in a, row, in a row, and I ignored it the first time. So, I thought maybe it was something... Uh, serious and it turned out not to be at all uh, so my apologies but no, I'm back no, no problem, no problem. No, 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 no. welcome back yeah you know Where are just, we? <laughs> just just before steph came back i was going to make an observation and this is just <clears throat> in comparison to the way it used to be back in the 70s and 80s maybe even the 60s yeah you know most of the guys and girls that i fly with quite amazingly it's it's almost a flip of the coin from when you talk about three, four ex wives and the boat and the and the four houses and and the three three Maserati sitting in, in the front yard. Um, I fly with very few captains that have ever been divorced. Most most of them have been in a very committed relationship for an extended amount of time. So um, it's it's almost like it, it it's how the industry is now. Anyways, you know, it used to be that we all used to go out and party all the time, have a good time, and do things. Now it's very straight laced and like very unusual. Tonight we're we had our same flight tents since this morning all the way through the day. Yesterday we had the same flight tents all the way through the overnight. Tonight we have our flight tents. 
we're, we're all on our own, not even socializing with each other. So it, it's some ways better, but a lot of ways it's, it's kind of boring and sad state of affairs. But it's uh, everybody seems to be more committed nowadays than they were back in the 80s, for sure. Well, it's a different world as well, you know, yeah. the, uh, with the um, onset of uh, sexually transmitted diseases and that kind of thing. It's just... Didn't uh, stop them in the I 80s. Uh, I don't know. 70s and 80s. It's, oh, it's no, a little no, funny the because 70s. I'm actually having a very similar conversation with folks at my work about, you know, the same type of Do- thing with older... Doctors and nurses. Older that's doctors a good, and That's nurses. a good game. I always like that game. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so, but it's it's not the case anymore. So, or well, you you guys are working for the wrong outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, tell us about that. What expand upon that uh, thought, Captain? Let me read. No, I couldn't. I might get into trouble. <laughs> Their HR department's worse than uh, APG. Really? HR. Yeah. And actually, I'm I'm in contact with them. So, <laughs> she's a monitor. That's right. I'm, Undercover. I'm worried now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's it's true that a lot of international airlines, their their laws and work rules are, are different. I mean, you can't get. I, yeah. I remember a specific conversation with the. Uh, um, I guess I can say it's Singapore Airlines. I was at a, a dive uh, convention, talking to the representative from Singapore, and they you know made comment on how they're known for such beautiful flight attendants. And he explained exactly the way and how they get their flight attendants. They make them sign a contract for five years. They pay for their training. And when they're up on the end of their contract for five years, they say, see ya. And if you're lucky, you might get a, a renewal of one one year, one more time on the contract, but certainly no more, more than 10 years. They had weight restrictions, height restrictions. And, you know, if you don't fit into the uniform that we they provide within reason, that was that was a standard back uh, for almost all the airlines back in the sixties and seventies. But that's uh, today. That is as well, I know. I'm saying that years ago, yeah. That that that's kind of an unusual thing. Um, uh, most airlines aren't like that anymore. It used to be, you know, being a cabin crew member, a flight attendant was not a career position, uh, but now it is. So you know, that's a, a plays a big part in the way people behave now. And and I don't and I'm and I'm not saying that to be you know negative in any any way towards our flight attendants because in a lot of respects I think if you have long term employees they feel far more invested in the product that we provide and thus they provide better service. Mm-hmm. In in my in my my eyes, I mean, if you have somebody comes in and knows they only they're only going to be here for five years, well, they may be young, beautiful, and you know nice to look at, but what's their motivation to provide that excellent service through the whole entire time? And then it's a contract and they could get let go, let go at any time. Yeah. You know, I, I think that our employees, especially today, you, you, you know what happened. Um, you know, we get rewarded for, for excellent service and yep. there's loyalty that's built there. Yep. True, true, true. All right. Uh, Sil- Sealview sent in this. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Dr. Steph, Sealview here. Love the podcast and about Dana's comment with fish urine that put our beloved podcast over the 50% accuracy. I love the old pilot's plane tales and really appreciate the work Captain Nick puts in doing them. I'm sure not sure if he did an episode about the North Carolina incident when a fuel leak led to losing a nuclear warhead that almost detonated. Uh, it's a Swiss cheese holes aligning kind of story. 
and I think would make for an interesting episode. And uh, I think this must be your note, Captain Nick. You actually covered that in uh, one of your plane tales. That's right. Yeah, that was part of uh, the plane tale on show 273 uh, called The Buff. And uh, it was the story of the uh, B-52. And, uh, of course, that was the B- one of the B-52s that had, had that incident. And uh, if you look about one hour and 46 minutes in, that's where you'll find it. Excellent. So great minds think alike then, huh? Absolutely. As always, I do have uh, to ask some questions, uh, avocation-related. Uh, number one, what are the hardest decisions you've ever had to make as captains? And... Secondly, tea, what tea or coffee? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, blonde or brunette? No, I'm just kidding. Um, what <laughs> factors influence? We, we haven't lost that last topic yet, have we? <laughs> no, I'm just going to keep going with it. No, I think the hair color you HR chose, takes. Jeff, was fine. <laughs> Thank you. Silver. Yeah. silver is good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, what factors influenced your decisions? Uh, so. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first with what, what are your, some of your uh, hardest uh, decisions to, you've made? You've well, I'm not, a cap- I'm not, a, I'm not a captain yet. So I well, let's really pretend that you are. Pretend that I am. Yeah. Well, I am going to, I am going to be a boat captain before I'm an airline captain. That's, that's a good sign. So How I might about have to make some hardest decisions you've ever had to make as a first officer. Um, well, you know, honestly, it's to step on the captain's toes. That is a tough thing to do. That is a tough thing to do. I mean, for example, um, oh, well, I remember a specific incident that I really completely disregarded the captain's command. And are you talking about when we flew together? Yes. Several (laughs) times. That was every single command you, every one of them. No. (laughs) Yeah, Jeff. Jeff and I always violated everything. <clears throat> not talking about the flight attendants, by the way. And we're not talking um, about the seventies. Yeah, yeah, we're not. Okay. No, so seri- seriously, coming at day day four. No, excuse me, day five of a five day trip. Five legs in the day. The last leg of that day. After a long day and dealing with weather, we were coming into Atlanta to land on nine right. Swinging around, the sun had set behind us, so we're going into the sun, swinging, and then away from the sun. So it was really dark in front of us and really bright, you know, as the sun was setting. So we didn't have our display set properly, you know. So we went from really bright to really dark. Swung around, and we're both exhausted. And we go through the the uh, landing checklist, do the landing checklist, and on the MD eighty eight, you have a flaps twenty three setting, which looks like the handle is in the flaps twenty eight setting but it's not quite there. So we both went ahead and verified that we're, you know, 28, 28 land. All right. And so, um, we both looked at it, didn't register at about 200 feet, which is when the warning comes on too low flaps, too low flaps. Captain immediately reaches over. said, I'm going to put that flaps on the I said, we're going around. He said, no land, land, land the airplane. I said, too late. We're going. I had already pushed the power up, and I was pitching the airplane because I was pilot flying, and he got, I mean, he was fuming mad, pissed off beyond belief, if I can use that term. He's like, what the hell are you doing? You know, going on. I said, shut up. We'll talk about it when we're on the, on the ground. 
And so we went around for the pat and he's sitting there fuming. We come back and land and we taxi off the room. And he said, thank you. I said, well, you're really PO'd for a long time. He says, no, thank you. Because realistically we would have been hit with a, uh, um, we have a FOQA, which is a flight operations quality assurance. And they wanted the, those things. If we are not stabilized below a thousand feet with flaps and landing configuration, landing gear down in close on speed and the 500 feet, we have to be completely stabilized. They monitor that. Well, we were 200 feet going to change our configuration. So that was a situation which I really overrode the captain. I said, go around. And he, you know, the captain is trained that if the first obstacle calls go around, you go around, you talk about it, you figure it out and figure out what happened. And he was adamant and insistent. And I think probably the fatigue and in the long days and after a five day, five day, a five day trip on the fifth leg of the, of the, and it was my, actually my last reserve trip. I flew as a first officer. Uh, thank God. Um, yeah, I get that to look forward to. So, anyways, that's that's the, that's one situation where I made a decision that. Yeah, you made the right happened. decision, though. I mean, that yeah. was the the rule. And sometimes, uh, the, the reason why that was difficult is it would have been so easy just to just move that flap handle just to the extra little tiny little bit, and then everything is exactly where it's supposed to be, and you land, and nobody knows the better. Except that we have all these snitch systems now that. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll tattle on you that, uh, you know, you, you made a, uh, a configuration change that close to the ground. You did the right thing. You made the right this decision. And, uh, and, tr- and true. And, and did you see how I set that up though? I set up with the Swiss cheese model. Mm-hmm. We had five legs on the last day of a five day trip. We're already tired, short, and didn't mention it was a short overnight. It was like 11 hour overnight. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we turned from going into the sun to away from the sun Everything was, and, and, and even looking at the instruments, you know, we hadn't hadn't adjust lights in, in the cockpit at all. So we weren't looking at the proper indications with the proper eyes, with tired eyes. And then the, the, the decision, the last decision to make there was fortunately, I made the right decision. Captain made the wrong decision. But fortunately, one, one of us made the right decision. And that's, you know, that answers the question. I mean... That's one one time that I had to make a decision as a first officer and overrode the captain. And if I had not been flying the airplane, he would have landed the airplane. Yeah, I would argue that the um, the decision as of making decisions like that as a first officer is much, much harder than when you're a captain, because you have the authority as the captain to make the decisions. You know, you're expected to to be the buck stops here, you know, the final decision maker. Um, so. Bravo for uh, not having copilotitis and just going along with what the captain wanted. Yeah, absolutely. No, there was one other one. Can I throw that one? It's real quick. Taking yeah. off out of DC, heading north on runway one. FAA jump seater in the in our seat. Captain, him, and myself about to take off. Pilot right in front of us took off. The winds are out of the south at about 14, 15 miles an hour. And so they kept on pushing everybody to leave on runway one because they didn't want to switch the runway around. So we go ahead, and I, I catch her. said, well, whoop, say the winds again. And they said the winds again. And I looked at the captain. I said, we're not taking off like that. And that was another one. He, he was about taxi. He was taxiing the airplane on the runway. I said, no. It may have been more more in It's like 11 or 12 knots. I said, but that's right up our tail, Captain. 
that's beyond the limitations. So yeah. both he and the FAA didn't catch that. Or maybe the FAA did and was seeing if you guys were going to go through with taking off with the <laughs> yep. well, out of limit situation. Yeah. I stopped that one too. Awesome. So anyways, enough. Well, hey, you're going to make a fine captain, sir. Mm, scared crapless. <laughs> no, the first officers will be. Uh, anyway, just kidding. They won't know um, anybody that you knew. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, how about in your line of work, Steph? Um, I'm sure you you have to make tough decisions as well, especially when you're dealing with people's health and and uh, well being. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of times we have to make difficult decisions. Um, in my line of work, a lot of times it often comes down to. <clears throat> um, the most difficult ones are where a patient has been sent to you with an expectation that you're going to do something for them, that they've been, uh, something's been advertised to them and they think they're going to be a candidate for it and, you know, have this wonder treatment and they're going to, it's going to solve their problem. And a lot of times that's not the case. Um, not that those are difficult decisions to make because they're pretty cut and dry in my mind, but the more difficult thing is having to deal with those patients afterwards and figure out how to explain it and explain it in a way that it makes sense and why we're not going to do it. And sometimes people are angry about that because they've been given these expectations that then are not met. Um, and it's really all about having to go back and build that trust with people and, and lay the groundwork for, yes, I understand why, you know, these were your expectations and why you were told this, but um, we really can't do that for, this, that, or the other reason, or it should be the last thing we do because you haven't done all of this other stuff first. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think if there's any real big parallels to aviation there, but a lot of times it just comes down to knowing when you shouldn't do something because sometimes it's easy enough to just say, yeah, you know, we could, we could do this procedure for you, that procedure and just see if it helps. But if you know, it's not the right thing, or if there's something else that needs to be done first, you can't let yourself give into those, um, well, I think you could make the parallel, you know, instead of patients, our, our customers, our passengers have certain expectations about things. You know, they expect sure. that we're going to be on time and and they expect that. Uh, yeah, I mean, some 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 parallels might be things like weather delays, maintenance delays, where people don't understand what's going on behind the scenes and why you're making the decisions that you have to make to keep the operation safe. Or, you know, where you're just, in my case, it's keeping the patient's best safety and best interests Um at hand. A lot of it comes down to risk benefit analysis. Yep. And if in my mind, the risks are greater than the potential benefits, we're, we're not going to do something. So. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Captain Nick, do you want to throw anything in there regarding oh, this? I was just going to say that funny enough, the difficult decisions you think would make in the air, like, shall I divert? Is it safe to get airborne? Um, do I need to carry that fuel or this fuel? For me, they're the easy ones because you just go for the safest option always, regardless. And you you never fall foul. The hardest ones I find, like the one I just had to make about flying to Barbados with a bit of a stiff back, sore back, and uh, a cold that might be coming or might not. As it turned out, it came. But by that time I finished the flight, they're the ones like when you're down rude and you're haven't slept very well, uh, and you know you've got a really long flight to go home, but you know there's no replacement crew down route. You you are obliged to you do the flight, and you know if you say, look, I haven't had a good night's sleep, I can't fly, uh, I need to you know, put my head back on the pillow for another 10 hours or whatever, you know that's going to be a really tough one because uh, uh, 
you know, the whole operation just grinds to a halt on account of the fact that one man hasn't slept particularly well. So they're the really tough ones, uh, I find. Um, yeah. And, of course, the, um, the the hardest one is to say, no, I'm not fit to fly. It's very easy to say, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead uh, and we'll just do the trip anyway. And then you end up like that, you know, crew that uh, were both tired end of a long day. They were commuters. Um, what was that? The, the um, was that Colgan? Colgan? Yeah, the Colgan air disaster. And uh, actually, you the know, anniversary the guy was, that just happened, didn't it? Because it was yeah, in that's right. January, February 2009, yep. I think. Yep, 2009. And, uh, the, you know, the guy mishandled a stall, uh, which he may well not have done if he had been a bit more alert. Um, so, you know, yeah, that, that for me, they're the toughest ones. Yeah. Sure. They're, they're the ones where, you know, the difficult decisions aren't things where there's a very cut and dry reason to to do it, even though sometimes those are the bigger decisions to be made. You know, you can look at it, you know, like you said, reasons to divert or whatever that is. But um, it's more the, the soft personal calls where it may be something personally related to you. That's not a hard and fast rule. Um, and I just wanted to add real quickly at the end of this, um, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard um, was from an attending physician of mine. And she said, if I'm on the fence about doing something or not doing something, I go with the the decision that I know I'm going to sleep well with later on that night. If I think through all of the potential outcomes of it, I want to be making sure that I'm making the decision where I'm not going to second guess that later on this evening, regardless of the outcome. So, and you know what I find uh, what I find is interesting is that we're at the point of you know when you're fatigued and, and that tired and you're having problems making decisions about what you know just basic decisions. How are you able to self-assess if you can't even make a decision on how you feel? Yeah, you exactly. See what I'm saying if if you're that tired, you're that fatigued, it's hard to make the decision. You have that kind of the situation that Nick was in in a different way. With us, you know, we're 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 you know getting done flying a uh, uh, you know three four leg day, and the weather's garbage, and we're on our fourth leg for the day, and we're looking at extending into you know up to the two hour limit. And right now I feel okay, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel fatigued. I'm not sure if I can handle it. It's been a rough day, uh, but I want to get the job done because, well, you're, you're the one man up. If you don't go, then everybody in the aircraft, 160 people are inconvenienced. So that's a lot of pressure to be put on on you. And then you have to try to make a decision when you're that tired and looking into the future whether you're going to be more tired. So there's been several situations where I – couldn't make that decision, and I made the wrong decision. Well, I'm still here, so ultimately I made the right decision because talked it over with the captain and said, "Hey, I'm not in the I'm not in the position really to fly this airplane. Why don't you fly? If you feel okay, I can work the radios and we'll get the job done." But that's really not the right way to uh, pursue it. it. But we are just so goal oriented, mission oriented. Yeah, I think sometimes we put ourselves in the wrong position. Goal oriented, mission oriented, and um, we happen to—and it's not true for all pilots and whatever your field of endeavor is—are uh, concerned about doing the best we can and providing the service that 
you know, people have paid for. Uh, and so if you're somebody out there and we all know them, Nick and, and Dana and you too, Steph and your mm-hmm. line of work, people that just have this attitude where I don't care if it's going to inconvenience somebody or whatever, um, what it's easier for them to make those kind of decisions. than it is for us who are thinking about those 240 passengers, Nick, that could have been, you know, stranded in Barbados, Barbados and, uh, you know, or never made it to the Island. Um, uh, it's, I, I, I kind of envy those people that don't really care. Yeah, you know. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I've come across plenty of them in the industry. Yeah. Which is sad, but luckily I think the majority of us really, uh, really do con- have concerns about, you know, providing the best we can for our customers. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's just, it's about being a team. I mean, you know, I'm sure what you were thinking about, Nick, when you were, were, were considering whether you were going to be able to do the Barbados was, well, what's the condition of my first officer? How, how, how is he feeling? I mean, if I start going downhill a little bit here, is, is he in a position that I feel comfortable that he can, be, you know, be there and, 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 and support me in, in the role that I need to be supported in? Yeah. Actually, that was the first question I asked him. Yep. So that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, what Jeff's talking about, we all, we, we're all uh, customer service oriented, but we don't ever want to put ourselves in a compromising position. So we always take into consideration everybody around us and whether they can be there in a supporting role. Yeah. So, well, you know, people that want to be in the position that we're in to make these hard decisions, these difficult decisions, well, you know, they have to get hired, right? And many people listening to the show. Uh, are, um, you know, looking at putting their resumes in and, and going to interviews, job interviews, and, and whether you're trying to get a flying job or not, this one just happens to be, uh, this uh, piece of feedback just happens to be a, uh, a typical pilot job interview. And apparently there was a hidden microphone in the uh, interview room. And uh, so it, we get a little uh, glimpse of uh, what a pilot job interview might just be like. Have a seat. You seem very qualified in the air. I just have a few other questions I'd like to ask you. Okay, sure. I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Great. I'd like you to speak into this microphone and read what's on this prompt. Okay, sure. Ladies and gentlemen, Thanks again for flying with Uptry Airlines. We're about an hour and a half from our destination with wonderful weather showing on a scanner of about 75 degrees with seven mile per hour winds. Thanks for flying Uptry Airlines. Great. I noticed a sigh in there. How long can you sigh? Oh. but you'll get the hang of it. Next question. You're a little off course and you need to make a slight adjustment, but you know the passengers are going to notice. What do you do? 
Um, blame it on turbulence and turn on the seatbelt sign. <laughs> Excellent. Can you demonstrate that for me? Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're uh, just trying to have the seats up and uh, tray tables. So, uh, all about turbulence. Everyone is trying to make sure to turn uh, seatbelts. <laughs> Superb. Now, it's been a while since you've said anything, and everyone's really into their movies. Sorry for the interruption, everyone. <laughs> uh, we're having a bit of technical difficulties. Uh, be careful with that. Uh, flight attendants, we'll just check in. We'll make sure to uh, take care of Great. Thanks for flying up Ireland. Perfect. You completely passed this part of the test. I have one last question on a different note to test your problem-solving abilities. Let's say you have a 120 mile an hour headwind and your co-pilot is unconscious and you have dual engine failure. What do you do? What was that? Sorry, I'm not getting it. Thank you for flying up by airlines. You're hired. <laughs> um, you got to watch the video too though because it's funny to see the expressions on it especially when he was doing that long the sigh, sigh. Yeah, that's hilarious it's so good <laughs> jeff so you recorded your announcements yeah that's okay, it cool. yeah. uh the weather is uh, weather, uh turbulence seatbelt magazine Anyway, that is not ATC memes, believe it or not. It was from an outfit uh, called Studio C, and they do uh, they do a bunch of comedic uh, videos on YouTube. And uh, link, of course, in the show notes. You really do need to watch the uh, the video of them doing this. Uh, very clever. <sighs> Let's see. You know what? I think um, it might be a good time for us to play this week's installment of everybody's favorite. Plain Tales. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. All blood runs red. This is a great plain tale, and my thanks to Larry Gregory for guiding me to it. It was 1960, and the President of France, Charles de Gaulle, was on a state visit to the United States of America. Upon arrival, he asked to meet a very special American. When the name was mentioned, there were blank looks from the White House staff, but after a great deal of scrabbling around, the man was finally located. He was a 65-year-old elevator operator 
who lived in a rough part of Harlem, New York. With the address in hand, two senior French officers in full uniform tried to find the building. On arriving in the street, one of them asked a local where the corporal that they were looking for lived. The neighbour asked who the hell he was, dressed up like a toy soldier, and to slow his mouth down and try to speak right. Finally, they were shown up a dirty, graffiti-painted stairwell to a little apartment. They knocked, and a small, tidy-looking black man answered. Once he was identified, they snapped to attention, saluted, and handed him an embossed invitation, written by the hand of the French president. It read, General de Gaulle, President of the French Republic, and Madame de Gaulle, request your presence at a reception on Tuesday, April the 26th, 1960, at 4.45pm. At the reception, the President and his wife spoke at length to this unknown, poor, black man dressed in a worn uniform of the French Foreign Legion, and the conversation ended with a heartfelt embrace, after which de Gaulle named him a true French hero. Now, many of us know of the brave African-Americans who flew with the Tuskegee Airmen during the Second World War, but not so many of us know that there was a much-decorated black American fighter pilot who flew and fought in the previous World War. I commend this remarkable tale to you all. If you have never heard of the man, I wouldn't be surprised. Very few have. This is the story of Eugene Jacques Boulard. The story starts at the end of the Civil War and with the Southern troops who were dragging themselves back home to Columbus, Georgia. A bedraggled soldier saw something move and he picked up a pile of rags to find a black baby boy left by the side of the road. Not knowing what to do, he gave the child to a nearby white girl, the daughter of the well-to-do Boulard family. The family took the child in, educated him, gave him work and their family name. He grew to be a tall, clever, well-spoken man who married a beautiful Creek Indian girl, and from their marriage came seven surviving children, the last of whom was Eugene. In a time when prejudice and mistreatment was commonplace, to comfort the children, their parents would tell them of the French origins of the Boulard family, whom they say came from an almost mythical land of unmatched liberty, fraternity and equality. Eugene had only got as far as the fourth grade when a baying lynch mob drove his family from their home. At the age of eight, he ran and made it as far as a gypsy camp who took him in. He was told to look after their animals and over the years grew up to become a fine jockey, winning many races for them. They called him their little black sparrow. 
At the time, though, he put away his share of winnings in the hope of travelling to the wonderful country of freedom that he had heard about, France. After years of wandering, aged only twelve, he stowed away on a German ship in Norfolk, Virginia, bound for Aberdeen in Scotland. Eugene's unconventional life continued as he moved from job to job, now a longshoreman, and then selling fish. Here, working in an amusement park, being paid to dodge balls people threw at him, and there spending time in a gym learning to box. A good fighter, he fought as a welterweight, winning bouts in England, until he was finally offered a fight over the English Channel in Paris. The moment he set foot in France, he knew he belonged there. A quick learner, who picked up languages easily, he was soon boxing all over Europe, learning French and German as he went along. French democracy, he said, convinced me that God really did create all men equal. In 1914, the country was plunged into war. Eugene had turned 19 years of age, and with his friends, joining up to fight, he tried to follow them. But being an American, he was sent to join his fellow expatriates in the French Foreign Legion. The training was notoriously tough, but Eugene was very fit and found it much easier than many. He was assigned to the Moroccan Division, 3rd Marching Regiment, which contained 54 different nationalities. Eugene Bullard and his comrades were sent to the Somme Front, where 300,000 Frenchmen were lost by the end of November. Boulard and his fellow legionnaires did most of their fighting with the bayonet, assuming they weren't cut down by machine gun fire first. Because of German atrocities, the legionnaire officers ordered that no prisoners were to be taken, so the Germans retaliated by declaring that all captured legionnaires were to be shot. By May the 9th, 1915, they had lost so many men that their regiment was dissolved and combined into the 1st and 2nd regiments. At the Battle of Artois Ridge, 4,000 men fought, but only 1,700 survived. Boulard's company lost some 80% of its strength, with only 54 of its 250 men left standing. Eugene survived battle after battle. During the Champagne Offensive, 500 men from his unit began, but at the first evening's roll call, only 31 remained, a 94% casualty rate. With a bad head wound, Eugene fought on. In the Legion, he said, as long as you could walk, or your trigger finger is not out of commission, you are good for service. He even survived the Battle of Verdun, where more than a quarter of a million died, with a further 400,000 missing, gassed, or wounded. Eugene became one of the wounded with severe leg damage, for which he was subsequently awarded the Croix de Guerre and the Medaille Militaire. 
His wounds were healing, but he was never going to be fit enough to serve with the infantry again. Instead, he was offered a chance to join the French Flying Corps. A wealthy American friend bet him $2,000 that he couldn't become a pilot. Perhaps bolstered by the challenge, he soon earned his wings from the aviation school in the city of Tours on May 5, 1917, and just as promptly collected his prize. Eugene Bullard had just become the very first black fighter pilot in history. He learned to fly the Cordron G3 and G4, and before long he was serving with the now famous Lafayette Escadrille Unit, the 93rd Aero Squadron, flying Newport and Spad 7s. Here, fighting a common enemy, he said, I was treated with respect and friendship, even by those from America. Then I knew at last that there are good and bad white men, just as there are good and bad black men. Now a corporal, Eugene painted a red bleeding heart pierced by a knife on the fuselage of his spad. Below the heart was the inscription, Tu la sonki kuli erruge. Roughly translated, it means all blood runs red. His first proper mission was in a Newport that he called a sweetheart to fly. It was September the 8th, 1917. He never missed a mission and claimed two kills. The first was never confirmed since the aircraft, a Fokker, went down behind enemy lines. But afterwards, his mechanics counted 78 bullet holes in his plane. His second kill was in November 1917, and there was no doubt about this one. He shot down a German Faltz after the pilot went into a classic Immelman turn in an attempt to come in from behind. Boulard ducked into a cloud bank and emerged below and to the right of his foe from where he slid in behind and shot the German down. When the United States entered the war, Eugene Boulard tried to transfer to his country's air force. By that time, he had fought for over three years in the war and been wounded four times. He had spent eight months in hospitals recovering from wounds, earned medals for valor, and was now a military pilot with confirmed kills. As an American, he was invited to transfer to the Air Service of the American Expeditionary Forces with the promise of being promoted. However, despite passing the physical, while other American pilots left to fight, Bullard's application was ignored for the remainder of the war. In October 1919, Eugene Bullard was discharged from the armed forces of France, a national hero of significant standing. He decided to remain in Paris and married a French countess, fathering three children, one boy and two girls. Sadly, the boy passed away soon after his birth. Eugene's marriage was not a success. 
After his wife inherited money, she wanted Eugene to retire so that he could join her socially full-time. But he loved people and the life he had built, so they eventually went their separate ways. By now, Eugene owned part of a nightclub and ran a popular athletic club. In the evenings, he could be found hosting the nightclub Le Grand Duc, where he entertained the likes of Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gloria Swanson, and English royalty such as the Prince of Wales. Soon after his marriage, he opened his own club, which fast became one of Paris's most famous entertainment spots for singers and musicians of the time. Eugene counted Josephine Baker, Langston Hughes and Louis Armstrong amongst his friends. When World War II began in September 1939, Eugene agreed to a request from the French government to spy on German citizens who still frequented his nightclub. When the Germans invaded France, his club and Eugene himself became hugely popular with the occupying German officers. What they didn't know, however, was that he spoke fluent German and was working as a spy. The Germans arrogantly felt that no black man could possibly understand their language and spoke openly in front of him. Whilst doing this dangerous task, he even worked with the famous French spy, Cleopatra Terrier. Eugene did more than just spy, and when a free French group he was with came under attack, he was badly wounded. Rather than allowing him to be captured and interrogated by the Gestapo, his espionage partner, Kitty, was able to successfully doctor his wounds and smuggle him to Spain with his daughters. Later, he was medically evacuated to the United States. He recovered from his wounds in New York City, and, joined by his daughters, Eugene settled down to rebuild his life. He was thrilled to see America again, but the only work he could find was as an elevator operator in the Rockefeller Center. It was the job he would hold until he retired. Perhaps through disinterest or just lack of care, whilst he was alive, America never recognized nor even realized the legacy of the brave corporal Eugene Boulard, who lived amongst them. However, France never forgot. In 1954, the French government requested his presence to help light the eternal flame of the tomb of the unknown French soldier at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Eugene, along with two Frenchmen, was given the honour of relighting the flame. Yet, when he returned to America, he received no recognition. France awarded Eugene 15 medals, which included the American Volunteer Medal, the Battle of Somme Medal, the Battle of Verdun Medal, the Medal for Military Wounded, the Combatant's Cross, the Military Medal, and he was made a Knight of the Legion of Honour, the highest honour the country can bestow. 
However, well after his death, on August 26, 1989, Governor Joe Harris signed a House of Representatives bill enshrining Eugene Jacques Boulard in the state of Georgia's Aviation Hall of Fame. In 1990, he was added to the Black Americans in Flight mural at the St. Louis International Airport. In October 1992, a memorial bust of Eugene was unveiled at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Finally, on August 23, 1994, 77 years after his application to fly for his own country was ignored, Boulard, the first black fighter pilot in the world, was posthumously commissioned to a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. Eugene died in 1961, just a year after being embraced by the President of France at the age of 66, well before the nation of his birth was willing to acknowledge him. According to his wishes, the French War Veterans Federation buried him in his Foreign Legion uniform with his Legion of Honor scroll in his right hand. The casket was solid brass and was covered in just one flag, the French tricolor. His pallbearers were all members of the Legion and he was placed in the ground at Flushing Cemetery in New York with full military honours. Before his death, he tried to explain his feelings about both France and America. He said, the United States is my mother and I love my mother. But as far as France is concerned, she is like my mistress. And you love your mistress too, but in a different way. Another masterful job of storytelling and uh, a true story. And I think we can learn a lot from the way this hero was treated that one gave me gooseies well i hope it wasn't just my croaky voice but you're right um jeff but it was a different period in american history and i think you have to accept that uh, things are very different now um so uh, uh yeah and we've all learned uh, a lot from that but i just found the story of his life just fascinating i mean i couldn't include everything that was has been written about him and everything he achieved because it's just too much and it's quite honestly you're reading it going this is amazing how the devil did this bloke get all this done and get all this fitted into one life you know it was just a bit sad the way it finished uh you know he he was uh, quite ill he was um in a, in a tiny and rather decrepit part of harlem uh, and um, the people around him didn't really know much about him. The Americans didn't really understand what he'd done and how important he was to uh, military aviation. Um, so, but uh, I think they now, I think now he's he's well recognized, but still not a lot of people know the story. No, and I didn't, I, didn't know the story. So. I didn't either. I didn't either. And let me tell you what you did, his memory and everything that he did, his, it's amazing the justice that you did for and, and the job that you did on that story for him. It's, it's, it's going to educate a whole new cadre of a generation. And I hope a lot of people hear that story. 
Like, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, he he uh, <laughs> he did a lot, even in the war. I mean, just getting through three years of the of trench warfare uh, in what were frontline shock troops, the uh, French, the Foreign Legion. Uh, I thought it was just incredible. The odds. Someone must have been smiling on that man. He was a Roman Catholic, by the way. He was an amazing man and a hero in his own right. But what made it even more special, I think, was the fact that his own country didn't recognize any of his his feats until after his death. Yeah. Yep. Not not for a long time. No. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, Nick for recording that and uh, Larry for the suggestion and yeah, Larry, uh, it was a great one. I, I really fell on that story, you know, uh, and thought this is brilliant. This is just the kind of story I like doing. Excellent. All right, let's move on to some more feedback. Sim captain stone writes, hi crew. It happened this January at Hawaii that there was a false missile warning as I know it was for, uh, as I know it was on for more than half an hour it was a real alert. Everyone got alerted on their phones and it was everywhere. So they thought for half an hour that they will die. It must be a, a tough situation. Uh, that time there were airliners flying to or departing from Hawaii. I promptly recalled Jeff Falmouth's 9-11 letter. Also, I read this in uh, aviationstackexchange.com about an ATC guy and how he experienced this crisis. Veteran Honolulu Control Facility member Steve Olson recounting the experience of working that day. 8.07 a.m. I was plugged in working airplanes like I do every Saturday morning when the day took a turn into the surreal. Pilot after pilot started to check in with the same question. Center, can you confirm the missile launch? Then, as questions on the control floor were asked, it seemed like every phone in the room started ringing. The word confirmed slung like a, or stung like a knife in the gut. As I started to advise the pilots on frequency that the missile launch is confirmed, the frequencies grew silent. As I did the only thing I could, continued to take care of the planes in my charge, all I could do was think about the ones I love, my loving wife, amazing kids. With less than 10 minutes, there was nothing I could do. We found out rather quickly that it was a false alarm, but it seemed like forever. With my heart racing and my stomach in my throat, this is what was in my mind. Every day, for the last 29 years, when I leave home for work, I hug Megan, kiss her, and tell her I love her. It may sound silly and trite, but today, for 10 long minutes, it mattered. Don't take anything or anyone for granted. And uh, Sim Captain Stone continues, What do you think about this? Have you witnessed this kind of crisis in the air? It must be the pilot's discretion to divert in these cases, but what about the ones on the ground? Taking off immediately due to pilot's discretion? Cheers. Wow. Well, <laughs> that, that is a good question. You're sitting there on the runway. You know that uh, you've gotten the alert that um, North, Korea has North Korea has launched a missile heading for Hawaii. You have an airplane full of passengers, and... You you request a clearance for takeoff, but it's denied. What do you do? Do you take off anyway? Is that emergency authority? This is from, back to those difficult decisions. Yeah, right? I think this is one where there's there's that you know the the hypothetical there is if you were denied the clearance, but say it was just chaotic and no one knew what the right answer was. Was should they let air, aircraft go? Should they keep them on the ground? Uh, there's no 
rule book for that, I don't think, or maybe there is, but I think it's, it's such a unique and individual situation. It's one where everyone has to draw on their experiences to figure out the best course of action in a short period of time and then execute that as uh, well as they can. So, Well, there was in the military because we used to practice it regularly and it was called a survival scramble. And uh, at that stage in uh, uh, the build-up to a, a practice war, uh, eventually the um, the BMU's warning would go off uh, as uh, missiles were detected inbound and uh, all the alarms would go and every pilot ran for an airplane. And uh, regardless of how, you know, how safe it was, obviously in, in practice peacetime, we didn't actually fly the aircraft that were unsafe, but uh, in wartime, if the aircraft could fly in any form or manner, even if the undercarriage was stuck down or had no ejector seats and you were sitting on a soapbox, you'd go and get the aircraft airborne and you just stay airborne as long as you could until you worked out where you could now land. Um, because obviously uh, the, the missiles are coming inbound to the place you're standing, no point leaving the airplanes on the ground. So if it happened to me on an airport, I would certainly try and persuade air traffic to let me go. I don't know if I'd be ever be in a position. You'd have to be right at the front of the queue, wouldn't you, yeah. to be in a position mm -hmm. just to bully yourself uh, onto the runway and get airborne. But I'd certainly try and uh, say to air traffic, look, safe place for me is in the air. Uh, I need to get airborne. And I wonder, you know, if, if allowed to take off like that or, or not allowed in taking off anyway, um, you know, 10 minutes, you know, how – how far away is that going to get you? Is it going to be far enough to, to avoid the, the effects of a nuclear detonation? I don't know. I think in 10 minutes, you could get a reasonable distance away. I think, I yeah. think you would survive it. Yeah. I think there'd be a very good chance. Well, and what I was going to say is if the first airplane that's blocking, everybody goes, I'm willing to bet everybody else is going to fall suit. And yeah. by the way, you know, I, th I know you think in 10 minutes is, isn't that long, but if you put the nose down and don't worry about your climb rate and get the airspeed right up to barber pole, I, I would say in 10 minutes you can get a very good distance away from that area. Yeah. And then the other situation, you know, you're, you're coming into Hawaii and you learn that there are missiles also coming into Hawaii. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of um, options. options. Yeah. No, none. Anyway. I mean, where do you guys have as a diversion for Hawaii? There is no diversion to a Hawaii. It's um, okay, uh, so it's uh, it's like the longest e tops yeah. out there. Basically, you have to call it a remote island procedure or something. I think that's what we call it. Um, I guess you could maybe go to like the Big Island and hope that the and none of the missiles, if there are multiple missiles, are you know not going to target that island, and perhaps you'd be far enough to survive it i don't know yeah but i mean i think you're better off waiting to see i mean you've got to wait 10 minutes to see if whether it's an actual missile attack or not and if they land and you know, you just hang around and going well i can't go anywhere else i'm gonna put down in the water if necessary somewhere near the island where my passengers would have a, a chance of survival yeah what a nightmare scenario <laughs> well <laughs> absolutely if, if i ever brought the 88 over to hawaii I better have some. Well, everybody better have a life preserver and some wars because <laughs> the mad dogs aren't making it. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, Love that's it. a that's a long trek. Well, anyway, that's a good. Uh, thank you for sending that uh, 
Sim Captain Stone. Um, uh, interesting to read about that Honolulu control facility. Uh, his um, his recollection of this uh, extremely stressful event. Yeah, it reminds you not quite the same thing. Reminds me of getting airborne out of uh, Narita just before the the huge uh, earthquake and the tsunami they had that destroyed a lot of the. Uh, the coast of Japan and uh, and wrecked that uh, nuclear power station. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were literally um, uh, an hour and a half, if that, beforehand. And news of the uh, disaster was coming through to the aircraft, and uh, we had to kind of uh, keep it quiet from the passengers because there was nothing anyone could do. We weren't able to get any information. No one could contact places, big cities in Japan, because all the electricity and phone lines were down. Then um, we waited until we got uh, back to the UK. There's no point in terrifying everyone or getting everyone all worried uh, until we more or less were on the ground at uh, the UK when we um, advised them that you know there had been a disaster. And we were met at the aircraft by whole teams of, uh, of counselors and people who spoke Japanese and people with telephones so that everyone could try and call or, or whatever. Uh, so that was very well handled, I think, thought by the company. But for the whole flight, I had to sit on the news. Uh, obviously, my crew knew, and, and most of those were <laughs> crew were Japanese who had family on the island who they had to just do their service and get on a smile. But uh, also, you know, they had to keep that information quiet. Mm. That must be difficult. For them, very, yes. Hi, my name is Gustavo. I am a captain at Acme Junior, and this is how I got here. So, it all started in Portugal. I'm the Portuguese representative here. My father was very much into motorsports, and I guess that pretty much grew strong within me. Very early, I would be watching my father racing and uh, taking the wheel here and there. Not necessarily uh, what I should be doing or what my mother would want him to be doing with me. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I'll never forget probably the very first time I actually uh, I overtook a car. I barely could reach the wheel. I was just sitting on his lap. He just kept accelerating. He said, hey, just go around the car. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you want me to do? Just just go. <laughs> there I went, just doing my very, very best to keep the car straight, just passing the other car. I quite wonder what the other person thought as he saw this five-year-old just overtaking him. <laughs> and I wonder where my father had been looking at that time. <laughs> he was actually looking at the way I was just happily looking to the other driver, proud of his son, just <laughs> taking him over. But yeah, I guess my father was quite like that, always doing his very best to push me out of my comfort zone. The way aviation started for me, I was not that young anymore. I was already 19 years old. The bug hit fairly strong. Uh, I was in Porto, Portugal. At the time, it was the very first uh, stop in uh, the Red Bull races there. And it was my very first proper airshow. Very first good exposure to airshow flying and to pure flying. At the time, I was not very impressed with the Red Bull races itself. But uh, at the time, actually, I was more impressed with the Brighton Jet team. 
So I remember seeing those jets flying from ash and just blasting through the skies and I thought to myself, it was like this ho-ho moment and I was like, yep, this is gonna be the coolest thing I've ever seen. I really want to do this. And I remember telling my friend on the side, I'm gonna be a pilot, I'm gonna be up there soon. So first thing to become a pilot, of course, I had to go through training. My very, very first thought, of course, to become a, a military pilot, join the Air Force in Portugal. Uh, fortunately there, there are not too many vacancies. I ended up applying to one vacancy. I pretty much passed everything, but uh, I was not medically qualified. I actually tried two years in a row. In between, I was studying management at university while I tried for another year. So the approach to Lisbon Airport would go right over my university. All I can say is those study sessions by the library with these huge full wall windows, with this beautiful view of planes coming in. Too much of a distraction, I must say. And I was just reaffirming that I was going to be a pilot and just a matter of time until I could um, continue to pursue flying. Then summer of 2009, well, I've just finished all my research. At the time, the very best course of action I thought would be to come to Florida, USA. General aviation in general was much, much developed in the USA than in Portugal. So, yep, America it is. So I finished all my licenses in one year. So I had both FAA, American and European, JA at the time. Then I instructed over there for about a year and a half uh, until my visa ended. I would already have about 1500 hours. At the time, the market in Europe was really, really bad. I was applying everywhere, trying any possible thing I could find. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up in uh, Bali, Indonesia. So flight instructing in Bali, I must say I save very good memories from those times. I had a very, very good life quality over there. I was living 30 feet from the pool and 60 feet from the beach. And just the Balinese people in general, the most friendly people I've ever met in the entire world. Uh, of, of course, things were a little bit different than uh, in a more Western uh, world. I had quite different situations to deal with. So I remember this one afternoon, flying with these students, it's been a, lot of, a long day, flying with quite a few students, so I'm flying with this new guy, and we just started the lesson, and uh, he was starting to get pale, starting to feel sick. I asked him, what did you eat? You know, I was going to, trying to troubleshoot if it was something he ate, or just seasickness, what was the situation, but he told me he didn't eat anything, and it was like 6 p.m., and uh, I was like, why is that? Why, why haven't eaten? <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm fasting. You're fasting? Great. How am I supposed to teach you here <laughs> if you cannot do all yourself together? Because you haven't eaten nothing all day. So why, why, why are you fasting? Oh, I'm a Muslim, Captain. Oh, you're a Muslim. All right, forgot that religion. Okay. So fast forward as a more experienced flight instructor over there. Every time I would meet a student, I would go, so tell me, what religion are you? And uh, I would get a Buddhist, then I would get the Hindu, then I would get the Muslim, I would get the Christian. Like, oh great, Christian goes in the afternoon. Muslim goes right in the morning. No problem with fasting. And I'll put the Buddhist right in the middle. So yeah, fasters were fun. Uh, but there are no Brighton jet teams or super powerful extra 300s. So 
I knew that was just a step along the way. Pretty much as quickly as I could, I would start to fly aerobatics and progress in that world. So my very first ride was in my 21st birthday. Uh, I was in Indian Town, Florida, with uh, master CFI Jim Alsip, fantastic instructor. Fast forward from that, I did most of my first aerobatic training in Super Decathlon. A lot of fun, very challenging aircraft. A few weeks after I've been doing every Sunday as much as I could afford, Sebring aerobatic competition down in Florida was just coming up. And uh, there I was looking desperately for a, a plane to compete on, because of course I didn't add one. And the only plane I could find was actually beautiful red Pete's S2A. So I had one quick flight to arm up in a plane. I remember the, my very first roll on the aircraft. I was probably not even inverted. My, my smile was already bigger than my face. And uh, after I rolled fully the plane, I was like, oh boy, it just keeps getting better. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, as we're coming back to the airfield, I see this extra going vertical in aerobatic box with the smoke on and it was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was the magic of flight right there. Day one of competition, I'll never forget. I must have been so pumped. My very first dive into the box, I got so fast, so much energy. The very first figure was a 45 line, which is pretty much just 45 degrees going up the skies. But I had so much energy that throughout that one maneuver, I just used all my aerobatic box so the rest of my sequence was actually f quite far away from the judges that are looking at you from the ground. But they gave me a perfect 10 on that one. <laughs> so that one was good. The rest were not as good, but the first one was solid. Of course, as a flight instructor, you're not making too much money. If I wanted to have all the fun I could flying aerobatics and pursue that dream, I also had to have a very good day job and a good career that could afford for that. So airlines would be the natural course. So of course, the very first year as a first officer, uh, you're not making that much money. Life um, expenses are a little bit bigger in the USA than in Bali. Over there I was living with two, three dollars a month and saving all the rest to go burn in the extra. I went from that millionaire lifestyle to uh, just a crash pad lifestyle. Quite a downgrade from the beach, but uh, stepping stones on the process. So my least expensive hobby would then became skydiving. Which was still expensive, but it was a little bit more affordable than aerobatics. So I pretty much put in a few, a reasonable amount of jumps. Uh, I finally got to finish my license I've always wanted. My first jump actually was when I was 16, even before I started flying. So my second year as a first officer, life quality starting to improve, starting to get a better schedule. Tiny little bit more money, but not much, but especially more days off. So I, I've been doing a little bit more skydiving then. Summer was coming up, it was my 28th birthday. I've always, always wanted to go up in an air balloon and do a jump from an air balloon. And I promised myself before my 28th birthday, I'll do a jump. So it's day before the jump. I was just walking around with friends in Walmart and uh, we happened to see these funny custom suits. And of course there was a, a nice lion suit over there, which kind of would make up a nice little touch for my birthday as a my zodiac sign is a, is a Leo. So we were going up the balloon. It was a beautiful, beautiful, still night actually, about to become a beautiful morning. The sun was just about to go up. 
So we're doing our usual checks before we do any jump, making sure every strap is in order, in good condition. We didn't forget anything. Everything is looking good with the parachute. Being very, very meticulous. I go to my friend as I usually do. So I have a second person checking me, making sure I didn't oversee anything. And he uh, goes to me, tail. And I'm like, what? Kind of still looking at my straps and everything. I said, tail, your tail. I said, what? Finally click, my, my Leo tail. Oh, I wasn't thinking of that one. <laughs> so here I am taking my Leo tail, making sure I'm not pulling that one instead of my pallet chute is gonna deploy my my canopy. So I'm not going down the going down the skies pulling my tail, wondering why things are not working, why things are not happening, why I'm still climbing down. <laughs> but yeah, it turned out to be my very, very favorite jump to date. So yeah, the, the big takeaway I must say is to never never give up uh, on your dreams always believe in yourself always stay determined be aware that sometimes things don't go as linear as you want them to go like they say you know the line towards success is a hell of a mess and that is true where i am right now is not really what i thought i would be back then it actually turned out to be much better um, so maybe that very luck I didn't add back then. I wasn't that one in a hundred that was lucky enough to get into the Air Force in Portugal. I later on uh, got it uh, and I was the one in a hundred that uh, was the lucky winners of the green card lottery. So I could come back to the US and I could work and uh, continue to pursue my aerobatic dreams and uh, my, my flying passions. So somehow things find a way to work out if you keep believing. I'm Captain Gustavo, and this is how I got here. Thank you, Captain Gustavo. Great to hear your story, and thank you, Captain Steve, for all the hard work that you put into doing Hi, H-I-G-H, How I Got Here, the number 10 edition. Oh, those are great. I love those. Did you uh, notice the uh, the splash screen that was displayed I, on the video? It was a great picture. Yeah, it was <laughs> a great, great picture. Just balloon jump. Yeah. Great job. I'll uh, include that in the show notes so you can uh, see Captain Gustavo jumping out of the balloon in his lion suit. Pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Those crazy skydivers. He I know. A little bit of extra flair, right? Not enough <laughs> to jump out of a hot air balloon. Yeah. So. Yeah. Crazy. Well, the lion suit's okay. It's being the tin man that'd be the problem. It'd be it? a little <laughs> more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Come down a bit faster too, I suspect. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Let's see. This quickly, we're uh, getting very close to the end of the show here, uh, probably nearing the uh, three-hour mark for sure. Um, well, uh, we had a little technical oh, yeah, right. issue at the beginning, and so we have to kind of estimate how long that was. So. Um, anyway, uh, Jez sent this in and it says a question for Dana and only Dana. Okay. You ready? Dana? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, it, I think it was episode 307, which discussed strobes and the weight on wheels switch enabling them. Fabulous discussion of some technical aspects, <laughs> but with all these technical terms, don't you just shorten them for ease of use? For example, Dana, weight on wheels, surely... You have an acronym for this? Wow. Wow. Yes, he does. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Loving the podcast. 
Thank you, APG crew from Jez. Thank you, Jez. Very good. Thank you, Jez. Very clever. Um, let's see. Another short one I think we were going to play was... Oh, Louisiana Steve. Now, I uh, got a chance to uh, meet up with Louisiana Steve and several people in the community did as well at Oshkosh. His full name, his real name, Steve Nicholson. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. Um, he says, I'm writing today to share two public safety announcements. Okay, first, because of any and all single-engine aircraft, excuse me, firstly, beware of any and all single-engine aircraft in the southern Louisiana area as I passed my PPL check ride today. Congratulations. Congratulations, Steve. All right. Nice Fade that out. And uh, let's see. And then the next thing that he has here is, secondly, please be aware of pet rodents pinching your rear end when sitting on the toilet in Baltimore. See attached link and you will see why. Uh, I almost... I'm not sure I even want to cover this one because it's kind of sad. Anyway, he says, hope all is well in APG land. Tailwinds to all. Louisiana Steve. Okay, the link that he sent us. Um, not sure how many of you heard about this uh, incident, which is... Everyone. Uh, yeah. Pretty sure uh, everyone heard about Spirit it. Spirit Airlines employee told a student, a college student, 21-year-old college student, who should know better, to flush emotional support hamster down the toilet. The student alleges, uh, Belin Alda, Alda Cosia, I'm not sure, um, said she flushed her emotional support hamster down the toilet after Spirit Airlines refused her furry pet on the flight. And she said that she called ahead to Spirit Airlines before her flight from Baltimore to South Florida on November 21st, 2017, regarding traveling with her dwarf hamster, Pebbles. dwarf hamster? <laughs> I thought they're all dwarf. Tiny. Extra <laughs> tiny hamster. Extra tiny. Okay. Um, Pebbles, uh, the hamster's name. Um, bless its heart. Rest in peace. Uh, she claimed the airline told her it was not a problem to bring her hamster on the flight. However, when the student arrived at the airport, she said the airline refused to let Pebbles on the plane. Uh, she said that she did not have many options since her family was in Florida and her friends were hours away. The student claimed a spirit employee suggested she uh, she either flush pebbles down the toilet or let the animal free. Uh, she skipped her flight and tried to rent a car instead, but she uh, said that she was too young to rent one. So she did what she felt was the most humane choice. I'm not sure that was the most humane choice. Uh, she was scared. I was scared. I was ho- It was horrifying trying to put her in the toilet. I was emotional. I was crying. I sat there for a good 10 minutes crying in the stall. The well, student... if she was emotional, that's what the animal is supposed to stop her. <laughs> no, you're not getting rid of it. support animal, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I don't think she quite understands what emotional support animal, you know, what the reason. I think there's a lot of things she doesn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, you can read the rest of the article. It'll be in the show notes. But uh, just sad that... Uh, this 21-year-old, you'd think she'd be able to think a little bit more clearly uh, and not flush a living creature down the toilet like that. That's just 
Yeah, mm, where, yeah, where it's going to sit in the sewers with all the alligators until it becomes a monster <laughs> hamster and it's going to come out and <laughs> attack <laughs> us all. <laughs> it might. You'll, you'll be at, Pebbles will be after uh, Belen. Belen. I'm not sure yeah. how you pronounce B-E-L-E-N. Get our own back. Oh, man. Uh, well, we're, we're going through these pretty quickly. Let's just do one more here. Uh, Jim Mercado, the designer of the uh, famous APG show logo, you know, the one with the wings, and it says Acme Airlines on it. Uh, very, very cool. And uh, let's see, he sent us some audio feedback, and it's a cute little story regarding ATIS. Hey, Captain Jeff, Nick, Steph, and Dana. It's design pilot Jim Mercado here from the Bay Area. Hey, all the talk about ATIS lately on the past shows reminded me of a story I wanted to share about an ATIS experience I had. So one day I was flying back to San Carlos on an instrument flight plan. And being a good pilot, of course, I picked up ATIS as far out as I possibly could. And it just happened to be ATIS whiskey that day. And so I wrote it down and... Uh, I was flying along with my brother-in-law, who was not a pilot that day, who was sitting in the front seat of the airplane with me, intently listening to all of the radio, which he enjoyed a lot. Anyway, so I got to the NorCal approach, and of course I said, I, you know, checked in and said, I've got whiskey. And the controller said, Roger, uh, whiskey's current. And so I confirmed, yes, I've got whiskey. So proceed inbound and hand it off to the next controller. And that next controller said, you know, Cessna, uh, tail number I was flying, uh, confirm that you have whiskey on board. So I said, yes, Roger, you know, Cessna, 1234, I've got whiskey on board. Roger, continue. So continue and then finally hand it off to the San Carlos Tower, which for some reason on that day, uh, he called and said, yeah, clear to land. Uh, and just uh, whiskey is current. And so one more time I said, yes, I've got whiskey. So cleared to land. I landed. No problem. Taxied in. Shut down the airplane. And I looked over at my brother-in-law, who was sitting in the right seat. And he had this kind of worried look on his face. And I said, hey, you know, what's up, dude? And he's like, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I have a question for you. And I, I hope I'm not offending you. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. He said, uh, Jim, are you like involved in any kind of like alcohol transportation or something? And I looked at him and I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, you know, you've been talking about having whiskey on board and all of these controllers are asking you <laughs> if you've got whiskey. So I had a a fun time explaining to him about ATIS that day and about the phonetic alphabet and how that changes. But I'll never forget that experience. Uh, so anytime I'm flying along and I hear whiskey, I always think about that day flying along with my brother-in-law. Uh, anyway, that's my story. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. I love it. Good story. Makes mm. me want to pour Sound, a cold one. Sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I like a nice whiskey. Uh, so it's, uh, the first day of Lent, uh, Ash Wednesday right now that we're recording the show. And, uh, once again, I'm going to try to make it all the way through the Lenten period without drinking alcohol. So 
How has that worked out Wish in the past? Yay. Not worked out well in the past, but I'm I'm more determined this year more than motivated. ever. More, more motivated. motivated than ever. Yeah. I'm sure your trainer would be very happy with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. See, that's 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 the, your motivation the, right there. That's the component of this that uh, is different from years past. So we'll see. And uh, anyway, the guy that the by the way, my personal trainer scheduler guy, um, he noticed that I hadn't been in a while, and he sent me a text. So how's 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 the personal training going <laughs> i said well i've been busy it's good i'm glad that somebody's like on my case steph is another one that's always been on my case about exercise so anyway well with that folks uh we're gonna go uh go ahead and call it quits for this uh, episode 311 um if you want to learn more about the show head over to airlinepilotguy.com and hopefully cross our fingers that uh, the the site will load we've still had a a couple of hiccups over there at the uh, at the airlinepilotguy.com site, um, but uh, we're doing our best to get it to keep it on track and keep it loading and, and providing information for you, like uh, how you can learn more about the crew, the community, uh, merchandise, coffee fund, uh, the live page, and so much more. So uh, again, airlinepilotguy.com. We have a couple of uh, apps uh, for uh, both Android and iOS platforms. Airline Pilot Guide, just do a search in your app store for that. And it's free, ad-free, etc. It's a great uh, thing to have. And occasionally, if you're lucky, you'll get a push notification. And uh, social media. Uh, go ahead, Steph. All right. You can find us on Twitter. That's at APG Crew. Um, we're all there. We can answer tweets sent to us there. Um, so stop on by and, and hang out with the community. Also over on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, you can share links there. Uh, we talk a lot. Of, uh, we talk about a lot of different aviation related things. Uh, members of the community definitely share interesting and funny uh, aviation related uh, memes and news articles. And we're all there as well. So stop on by the social medias. Excellent. And uh, we also have something called Slack. We're a, we have a group on Slack, and Hillel will tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack. Again, not enough can be said about emphasizing the replacement of L or one for L. So check it out. Join us on Slack. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Adios, muchachos. day. Them to their seats. Airline, I got
I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly Oh, and I ain't going.